Greetings, friends. It's Jibs here from the show. Before everything starts today, I just want to thank you, everyone, for listening. And, uh, you know, we hope you enjoy these lore lessons. Cash did a lot of hard work on these, and there's over four hours of Elder Scrolls lore for you to enjoy. Now, real quick, if you're looking for a specific thing, you can find this at the website at loreseekerspodcast.com over at the episode release page or in the episode page, release page itself, but you'll find all the timestamps below so you can hear exactly what you want to hear when you want to hear it. Thank you for listening. Have a great time. We love you, and we'll see you next week on the first episode of Volume 6. We do have a lore lesson this week, my friends. And yep. In the spirit of the five companions... And in the spirit of what we have been doing for the last couple of weeks, this week we are hunting down Sai Sahan's motifs. All right. So why, if we have the opportunity to earn a true hero's armor, are we not learning about him? There you go. So that's what we're doing this week. Sai Sahan is a Red Guard swordmaster. He's a member of the very companions. And as part of the five-year celebration, completing uh, daily, daily dungeons and uh, trials quests across Tamaria will get you a chance to earn the various pieces of Saisahan's armor. And I will say the RNG is a little better today than it was <laughs> last week. <laughs> I got two pieces today after doing not that many uh, pledges. Um, so I was actually kind of happy about that. But last, last week was rough. So anyway, let's get to know Sai a little bit. Saisahan was born in the Second Era. He was a son of the noble by the name of Nazir Itaf Sahan, and they hailed from the region of Bankarai. During his formative years, Saisahan was trained by his friend and mentor, somebody who may sound familiar to you, Kasura in the Valley of Blades. Hmm. Kasura is a Red Guard instructor at the Abbey of Blades in Hammerfell, and she trained Sai in the arts of the body, the blade, and the mind, which we're going to talk about a little bit here coming up, what that actually means to a red guard. Sahan learned the way of the ancient Yakutan sword saints and excelled as a warrior with nearly unmatched martial prowess. Here's our first fun fact of the lore lesson. In Sai Sahan's life, his greatest regret was his failure to revive that ancient Yokudan tradition of the sword singer. The sword singers were an order of Yokudan warriors who followed the way of the sword. And these warriors brought their traditions of astonishing feats of swordsmanship through mind, body, and spirit as part of the infiltration of the regatta in the first era. Remember, they came over from their island that was sunk, and they basically just wreaked havoc on the coastline and made themselves a beachhead and then came in and reestablished Hammerfell and pretty much took it over. The sword singers were responsible for the claiming of the entire and for the establishment of a new homeland for the Yokudan people. And the most recognized and accomplished of the sword singers was their leader, Frandar Hunding. Might ring a bell with some of you, because I'm sure a lot of you stamina characters are using Hunding's Rage as a good beginner set. Sai Sahan was a man of unyielding honor. He was a patriot to the Red Guard people and the ancient ways of Yokudan culture. Sai was very fiercely protective of his friends, his fellow warriors, and to his emperor. 
Saisahan was dedicated to his duty and he trained religiously to hone his battlefield skills. He was known for having a dark side, however, and he would fall into a state of bloodlust on the combat field, and that would allow him to emerge victorious in the face of insurmountable odds on the battlefield. And we'll have more on that too coming up. Saisahan went on to thrive on the battlefields of Tamri. Eventually, met a very powerful Colovian military leader by the name of Varen Aquilarios. That's the prophet. Spoiler. Okay, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So if you did the spoiler thing, I have to ask a question. Uh Uh-oh. You're talking a lot about Psy in the third person. Does that mean that you sacrificed him? Mm. I did not. Okay. I sacrificed somebody else that I felt had lived a long enough life and caused a lot of <laughs> Clearly, by the way they looked. <laughs> he may or may not have gone blind at some point in his life from reading this certain scroll. I don't know vestige. what they're called, really. Uh-huh. I'm down to my cave vestige. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he's, uh, he, he talks, talks with a lish. Jesus Christ. Crash. Yes, I sacrificed the prophet. Okay. And the only reason being, this is going to sound so freaking cheesy and so romance novel, you're going to laugh. I sacrificed the prophet and let Saisahan live because, number one, Sai had already gone through a whole bunch of shit. Mm. Like, okay, dude, you've had enough. Yep. And he was in love with his Oh, you fell for the love story. He was in love with his snow lily. That's a huge wit. <laughs> so <laughs> I did look up the choice differentiation yeah. in yeah. there because that's one of the things I love doing is looking at that. And eighty percent of the player base picked the prophet. Really? Wow. Yeah. Well, he lied to us first off. He did. He lied to us. Um, second of off, or second off, he uh, he caused a freaking big problem. Yeah. So, I mean, we could totally he get did. I mean, about this, technically, Psy but... was part of that as well. True. That's true. True. Right? You know, and, and yeah. 12% of the player base picked Psy. And 6% of the monsters out there <laughs> picked Lyris. Oh, my gosh. What? <laughs> yeah. Well, so... at that 6%. Oh. <laughs> I love you, my Lyris. Oh, man. <laughs> yep. Oh, my God. That is so freaking awesome that you know that off the top of your head. Now I feel like a total lore noob. <laughs> <laughs> Please continue. I was just curious because you were talking to him about the third person. I'm like, I, you totally sacrificed him. Holy cow. I love this. Because <laughs> normally Jib just sits there and goes, okay. That's, good. <laughs> that's awesome. Pretty cool. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have the stats. Like, oh, by the way, 80% of people killed the blind guy. <laughs> okay okay so uh so anyway saisahan won battle tamriel and then eventually met varan aquilarios and gained his trust and then saisahan was given command of the legendary dragon guard so aquilarios loved saisahan so much and saw his skills so much that he uh was going to make use of size leadership skills so Saisahan was sent with a band of mercenary soldiers during uh, Aquilarius's war with the Longhouse Emperors. And this was a very, very pivotal time. At the time, Saisahan had no idea that these mercenaries 
countries were in league as double agents with the sitting Emperor Leovic, and they all had plans to betray him. So Sai was sent to Leowin to basically liberate the town. But what ended up happening is that um, these mercenaries turned on Sai Sahan, hoping to deliver his head to Leovic. Which brings us to our next fun fact. The Longhouse Emperors were a dynasty of Reachmen who held rule over most of Cyrodiil for many decades until Emperor Leovic, we're flashing forward here, was killed by the Colovian military leader, Varys. And there's actually pictures of that that you can see online. It's pretty cool. Shows him in his throne. Mm. After Leovic was slain, Aquilarios, this is where he went wrong. Aquilarius claimed the throne of the emperor for himself. Such a good man. Such a yes. good, good, good man. So in the past, emperors of Cyrodiil were all of dragon's blood, and Aquilarius, which Aquilarius is not, or was not of dragon's blood. So that's what really started the whole soul burst thing. If you haven't played your main quest line, then go play it, because that's what it's all about. It's a great story. Okay. So, back to Sai Sahan at Leowin. His mercenaries turned on him, and these would-be assassins were all murdered by Sai Sahan. Hmm. And we're talking a lot of them. We talked about his bloodlust and his martial prowess. While well, Sahan completed the liberation of Leowin, and then traveled back to Aquilarios' encampment in Bruma, and delivered the scalps of 86 men to Aquilarios. Ooh. All of the mercenaries that tried to kill him. If that is not 100% badassery, <laughs> I do not know what is. <laughs> and that's why I didn't kill Sai. Mm-hmm. I figured he'd probably come back to haunt me in the end or something. That and the voice actor's amazing. Actually, yeah. And he makes jokes about uh, breadcrumbs and beards, which I thought was pretty freaking hard. <laughs> so, even though this is about as much beard as I get, this, <laughs> this two-day shadow. Bless your heart. Yeah, bless my heart. Bless my work policy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Saisahan's battleground exploits would become legendary. Definitely continue to take notice. After Varen killed Emperor Leovic and proclaimed himself the emperor, he recruited Saisahan into the five companions in hopes of recovering the Amulet of Kings. Remember, I was talking about Aquilarios not being a true dragonborn. Well, Aquilarius planned to recover the Amulet of Kings to use it in a ritual that would supposedly turn him into a dragonborn, giving him a legitimate claim to the throne. But what ends up happening, which I won't really spoil very much, but they're betrayed by the necromancer Manamarco, and the veil between Nern and Oblivion will be shattered in an event known as Saisahan is subsequently captured and brought to the Halls of Torment where his captors, Manamarco and Molag Balbag, <laughs> continue to torture Saisahan for information and Sai never freaking broke. I love him. Yes. So continue along with the guy's badassery, his strength and courage, enduring endless amounts of torture and never freaking broke. He's a badass. It's freaking awesome, man. Yep. I think his armor so far is looking the best, too. And the motifs. 
I, you know, like last week with Abner, I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm, I'm digging the dagger. I like the, the staff. That's cool. And, uh, but man, size stuff. Whew. Yeah. There's a lot of good looking sure pieces. I'm pretty sure I would have broke, Jibs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I would have said, it's in a cave. <laughs> I'll tell you exactly where it is. It it's in the prophet's cave. I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> so anyway, um, I wanted to bring a point of interest up since the necromancer is going to be a thing, a very amazing thing coming up here in a few weeks. How many days are we up to? Are we 27 uh, days away? 25? 7? Oh, really? 6? I don't know. I know. Oh, Rich, I'm sorry. So Did we just close. get you gut rot thinking about that? <laughs> we just made Rich's gut turn into... <laughs> oh, God. I think I'll have another drink. <laughs> another round. Well, here's a beautiful thing, too, about, about what we're hearing about elsewhere. We, Jibs and I are not touching PTS and nope. we apologize for not being a part of all the bug reporting and everything, but no, 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 we're not touching PTS. But what we are hearing, cause I definitely am looking at, I'm watching builds. I'm watching some of the content talking about the necromancer skills and stuff. So I can at least plan, but what we're hearing is insanely good. I'm sure you know what you're hearing too. Um, I'm hearing that necro is a little bit OP at the moment, which is fine. So don't touch it. Leave anything. it alone. Just leave it alone. It's fine. It's fine. You know. The community has <laughs> spoken, Rich. <laughs> but, yeah. So if it's, you know, 25, 26 days away, I got no butterflies. I'm super excited. <laughs> okay. So anyway, let's finish up with uh, some... I wanted to hit on this point of interest with the Necromancer in regards to the Red Guard and Necromancy in the region of Alakir. Um, typical Red Guard tradition holds that any sort of interaction with the undead is strictly forbidden, including the practice of necro- necromancy, like very, very harshly judged against if you take part in any necromancy in the region of Alakir. There's actually a secular tribe of Red Guard who made it their lifelong duty to purify mausoleums and destroy the undead. They were known as the Ashabah. They were warriors. And though this was a very, very necessary detail for Red Guard to provide for the sanctity of the Yukutan culture and religion, because they operated so close to and hunted down the undead and necromancer, they became exiled and they became known as nomads because just because of that contact. Mm. So that's how superstitious Red Guard people are yeah. when it comes to consecration of their dead. Another form of anti-necromancy that was practiced by the Red Guard was the creation of something called the Ansei Wards. These were actually ancient relics that were formed as a part of a covenant with Tuaka, Tuaka being the Yokudan god of souls, to ensure that the consecrated corpses of the dead could not be raised by even the most powerful forms of necromancy. And this reminds me of Arkay's law. Whereas if a corpse was blessed by Arkay with a certain ritual, then they also could not be uh, raised by necromancy, which I thought was kind of a neat point. So anyway, I know some people out there who are just to spite traditions and law 
are going to roll red guard necromancers, <laughs> which I think is awesome. Actually, um, maybe may not be meta, but who cares about meta? And um, I just thought that was pretty cool. I mean, if you if you're in an RP guild and you roll, creating chaos like right there, level one. Oh yeah, absolutely, for sure. For sure. And man, and going back to the red guards, like. You know their whole disdain for the undead. You see that. Not I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but if you've been to Alakir Desert and oh, you've yeah. rocked that quest line, that's some good yeah. stuff right there. That's some good meat. Yep. Talks about it all that. I mean, it takes you right through pretty much the life of the Ashaba mm-hmm. and the things go through. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good quest line. Okay, the next fun fact. I thought this one was pretty cool, so I had to throw it in. Each household in Hammerfell has an alcove near its hearth adorned with a copy of the Book of Circles, which honors Frandar Hunding. The book was written by Hunding himself in the first era, year 750, and it is part of the culture of the everyday life of a Redguard. The book is very highly regarded as a guide on blade mastery and a Redguard sword. In it, it talks a lot about how a Redguard's sword is considered an extension of their soul and a symbol of their honor. Ooh, that's cool. I know. So you want to talk about an honorable class for an honorable race? The mm-hmm. Red Guard is it. Absolutely. Like incredibly deep, deep honor and tradition. I remember, I think it was volume one. Or, yeah, volume one when we talked about the Red Guards uh, the, in, as a whole in a lore lesson. And ever since then, I've had this deep appreciation for like, hey, don't screw with that guy. He knows how to use a sword. <laughs> Just because there's kick yeah. your ass exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, do not fight. Do not engage. Run for days. Do you remember when we had our when we had our what? We had that race through all the regions. Oh yeah, the naked race. Yes, a whole bunch of people pulled out their red guard characters that were maxed in stamina. <laughs> 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 That's awesome. Hey, it's strategic. Yes. It's like super smart. Oh, actually. yeah, that was good. That was a fun time. So, But anyway, um, Saisahan's story is just adorned with glory, honor, humility, defeat, spiritual resurrection, the things that the guy went through. So get out there and earn his armor. It is totally worth it, whether or not you like it or not. Honor the man because he's a freaking guy. Okay, so I was I went a little bit out on a limb this week um, in finding some content for a lore lesson, and I really have to give some credit to some of the content creators on YouTube because there are some great ones for lore. If you got and I know I've shouted out Shoddycast before, um, much to my heart's chagrin, Shoddycast is no longer making content for for Elder Scrolls. At least I haven't seen one of their videos in a long time, but Fudge Muppet. Yes, Fudge Muppet is his name. <laughs> he still is, and he's really, really good. I love watching the guy's videos. So he brought up, um, he actually did a video on Topal the Pilot, um, or Topal the Pilot. Topal the Pilot is the literally like one of the first explorers to discover Tamriel, and uh, you know from the outside in. And I'm going to talk about him today. And the more I got into it, it's a long lore lesson, but the more I got into it, the more stoked I got because this was an amazing journey that this gentleman went on. 
So let's get started. Throughout the history of Tamriel, many notable explorers and heroes have made their mark. Many of them have made such an impact, they've been recorded into the lore books that you find scattered across the land. But one in particular, one explorer in particular, made it possible. Back in the Marathic era, Topol the pilot, the first explorer, set out on an adventure that would pave the way for millions to follow. Topol the pilot was also known as Torval the pilot. He was the earliest known Aldmer explorer of Tamriel. Notice that, that I said Aldmer, not Altmer. Mm -hmm. Aldmer were the were some of the very, very first inhabitants, especially in the Somerset regions, uh, coming traveling from the um, the land of Aldmeris. Top, uh, Topal's ship, the Nibbin, was among three other exploration ships that set sail from the Somerset Islands or Somerset Isles in search of new lands, including Old Elnafe. Old Elnafe they were supposed to find, and you'll remember that Old Elnafe is another name for Ald Marys, which is the original homeland of the Aldmer. So their assignment was to find a passage back to Old Elnafe so that Aldmer that were living in Somerset in, at that time could discover what had happened to their homeland. So needing a source of guidance for the seaward expeditions, very strange crystalline balls unearthed at ancient Aldmer shipwrecks and docks were utilized by each of the three ships. The mysterious artifacts puzzled archaeologists for years until they discovered the crystalline balls had a tendency to rotate on their own axis in a specific direction. So the relics seemed to be attuned to a particular line of power, and the pilots of each ship, and call them captains, I call them pilots, mm -hmm. used one of the relics to point their ship in the direction it indicated. So of the three ships, the first ship, that name of the ship is unknown. It was never recorded, or at least to where it was discovered. But that ship sailed northwest toward Thras and Yakuta. Now, we've already talked about Thras. It's the home of the Slod. And Yakuta is the ancient homeland of the, of the um, Yakutan people, which then became the Red Guard. The second ship was manned by pilot Ilio, and it was called the Pasquianel. That sailed south from Somerset toward Piandania, which you know is the home of the Sea Elves. Topol the pilot aboard the Nibbin and his northeastern pointing waystone set sail on the Abation Sea and landed on the mainland of Tamriel. So a little fun fact here. We're going to talk about the, um, the second ship in the exploration feat, the Pasquianel. They left Somerset Isles and they were never heard from again. Many scholars assume that the ship was either lost at sea or destroyed at the hands of the sea elves, the Pandanians. Um, there's no proof of the ship or the crew's fate. The third ship, which, the, which was the one with the unknown name, is largely unknown in the lore of Elder Scrolls. The three ships were ordered by the, by the leadership at the Crystal Tower at the time to sail forth for 80 moons, 80 days, and then return home with their findings, and only one ship made it home. Wow. And you can guess that the ship that made it home was Topol the pilot on the Neven. So, you can kind of see, there's a lot of hooks that kind of get you with this lore lesson. It is 
incredible. So just buckle up. Buckle Got the up, right yeah. term this time. Buckle up. Because this is a good one. So following his orders, Topol the pilot sailed into the Bay region now known as Iliac Bay. And he made first landfall after two months of sailing somewhere close to Anticlear, which is in the region of High Rock. Um, another fun fact. If you look, this is very interesting. If you look, and if you're, if you're uh, in our live lore lesson right now on Twitch, then you can see the map. If you look at a modern map of Tamriel, it would seem that Topol the pilot, first sailing northeast from First Hold, which is in Oridon, it's one of the two, or one of the islands of the Somerset Isles, he's sailing northeast from First Hold. So at a modern map of Tamriel, it would look like he would have had to travel more north or northwesterly in order to reach High Rock. But if you look at an older map of Tamriel, specifically maps from Elder Scrolls Arena, it shows the land masses in different locations with High Rock and where he landed being directly to the northeast, the direct the direction he was said to have traveled in. So I don't really know what happened here between the two maps, but a modern map shows that he would have been way off. Like right. he would have he would have ran into like Rahad or Stros Mackay traveling northeast from First Hold. But the older maps show a little bit more uh intricately the correct direction that he actually landed. And it shows him landing right in the bay in between Hammerfell and High Rock. So it's a little bit more lore friendly. Um, and like I said, I, I have no idea on the discrepancy between those maps. Huh. But we do know that Topol the pilot reached High Rock. That's where he first landed. When he landed there, he encountered many native Orsimer. Yes, orcs in the region. It was at this point that his journals started to become fragmented and the information on his travels was mostly lost. Additional portions of his recorded travels describe him reaching the lands of Morrowind, the Isle of Gorn, and the fetid swamps of Black Marsh. And we're going to cover those right after I take a sip of whiskey. Right after you take a sip of whiskey. Yeah, I'm going to drink some water. You carry on. Right. So... Okay, next image. So, the Nibbin and Topol the pilot's crew was the only ship to return to the port at First Hold in Oridon. The ship, when they returned, was laden with gold, spices, fur, strange creatures both dead and alive. Now, Topol never did find old Elnafe, and I'm sure we would have heard about it if he had. Although his stories of his travels and discoveries enchanted everybody he talked to. Another fun fact, several of Topol the Pilot's original maps are still housed to this day at the Crystal Tower in Somerset Isles. I don't think you can visit them like you can the Constitution of the United States of America. But <laughs> Supposedly they're there. Okay. As described in a translation of his fragmented journals, they were fragmented and only four of these fragments were recovered. There is a book that's out there called the father of the Nibbin and the scholar Florin Jalil Jalil Florin Jalil interpreted everything that he had to say and was able to 
pick out bits and pieces of the things that Topol put in his journal and detail his travels. Okay. So fragment one reads as such. For 60 days and nights, he sailed over crashing waves of dire intent past whirlpools through mist that burned like fire until he reached the mouth of a great bay and he landed on a sun-kissed meadow of gentle dells that totally describes High Rock and, and the bay. As he and his men rested, there came a fearsome howl and hideous orcs streamed forth from the murky glen, cannibal teeth clotted with gore. That was the first one. First fragment. Now, another fun fact. There is a lot of speculation and questions as to how Topol the pilot ran into orcs in High Rock. Like, what were they doing there? The orcs were not said to have even been born onto Tamriel until after the Aldmer had settled on the mainland. They were said to have been born as a result of a famous battle in between Trinamac and Boethia, which we've covered in a previous lore lesson. But that was at the time of Residen, which is now known as Morrowind. So there is a lot of speculation out there as well that perhaps the orcs were present and they were actually an aboriginal tribe that existed in the region long before the Old Mary colonized Tamriel. Oh, man, I love this lore. Yeah, it's good. Very, very good. Okay, so the second fragment of information from Topol the Pilot's journal depicts the events of nearly 80 months later. 80 months where the Neben has sailed completely around the top portion of Tamriel, continues to the east, and then drops back down south where the Nibbin's trying to make its way home back to Somerset Isles. So imagine that trek. 80 weeks. <laughs> all the way up and around, all the things I saw. So, here is the next passage. No passage westward could be found in the steely cliffs that jutted up like giant's jaws, so the Nibbin sailed south. As it passed, a sandy, forested island that promised sanctuary and peace, the crew cheered in joy. Then the exultation turned to terror, as a great shadow rose from the trees on leathered wings like an unfurling cape. The great bat lizard was large as the ship, but good pilot Topal merely raised his bow and struck it in the head. Guy's a badass. As it fell, he and his bosun, or as it fell, his bosun asked, Do you think it's dead? And before it struck the white bearded waves, he shot it once more in its heart to be certain. And so for another 40 days and six, the Nibbin sailed south. Ooh. Want that yeah. guy on my team. Yeah, for sure. So, the way that was described is um, in this particular uh, part of his journal, they were passing parts of Morrowind. Right. Um, and many consider that great bat lizard to be a dragon. There's a lot of speculation. Oh, it was a dragon. But by most scholars' estimations in the region where it took place, it is most likely the large creature uh, that was as large as a ship was an early ancestor of the cliff racer. Which makes sense because it was near Morrowind. Right. Continuing his journey south and back home to First Hold, Topal ran into an unexpected landmass that seemed impassable. Now, if you look at a map, 
the map would show that on their trek south, on the eastern edge of Tamriel, they found this impassable piece of land. Well, that impassable piece of land just happened to be a large peninsula, but it freaked him out and it freaked out the crew. They're like, what the hell do we do? Where the hell do we go? We must have made a wrong turn somewhere. So studies of modern maps of the region show that the impassable landmass Topol the pilot ran into was actually the bottom part of the eastern coast of Morrowind and into Black Marsh. It was merely the peninsula that we talked about. So they continued south, but would they have con- if they would have continued south, they would have shot straight back to Somerset. So this was a major mistake, but it's an amazing journey that they had because of this mistake. Right. So fragment three describes what they ran into as they were coming down south and realized that they weren't going to be able to pass this huge peninsula. Mm-hmm. Fragment three. The fetid evil swamplands and their human lizards retreated to the east. And Topol and his men's hearts were greatly gladdened by the sight of diamond blue, pure sweet ocean. For three days, they sailed in great cheer northwest, where first hold beckoned them. But the hope died in horror as land like a blocking shield rose before them. Topol the pilot was sore wroth and consulted the three maps he had faithfully drawn to see whether best to go south where the continent must end or take the river that snaked through the passage north. North, he cried to his sad men, north we go, north we go now, fear not the north. So, up the north they went. In between Elsewhere and Merkmire, towards Cyrodiil, they took the trek north. And the, the passage they took is what's now known as the Nibbin River. So it's clear now that his explanation of Black Marsh, and if you look at the map that we have, you can see what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. They made it all the way up and across the top of Tamriel, all the way south, and at the southern edge of Black Marsh, they freaked out and made a right turn and went right back north, <laughs> straight up and through Nibbin Bay. But this is where his journey gets amazing. It's clear that in his, in his explanation of Black Marsh, that it scared the crap out of Topol the pilot and his crew. <laughs> it literally, like, it scared the crap out of him. So in this major mistake that ended up being a giant blessing for his journey, Topol the pilot makes a decision to travel north, looking for passage back to First Hold. The path he chose for the Nibbin took him up a river between the landmasses of Elsewhere, Black Marsh, and ending in the province of Cyrodiil. The river would later be named the Nibbin River after Topol the pilot's ship. And then, here's fragment four. The cat demons of four legs and two. That was interesting. The cat demons of four legs and two. Talking about quadrupeds and bipeds, which indicate that sench, sench rot, and all of the other two-legged species Mm -hmm. of Khajiit were present at the time. Wow. Sorry, I totally just nerded out. Oh, that's awesome. Anyway. The cat demons of four legs and two ran the river's length, always keeping the boat in their green-eyed sight, hissing, spitting, and roaring with rage. 
But the sailors never had to brave the shores, for fruit trees welcomed them, dropping their arms down to the river's edge as if to embrace the myrrh. And the men took the fruit quickly before the cats could pounce. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Like they're traveling up the nibbin and they're, the boat is going along the side so that they can pick the fruit and the cats can't get to them. <laughs> thought that was freaking <laughs> hilarious. Okay, I continue. For 11 days, they traveled north until they came to a crystalline lake and eight islands surpassing beauty and peace. That's Cyrodiil. Brilliant, flightful creatures of glorious colors greeted them in Aldmeri language, making the myrrh wonder until they understood they were only calling back. The word they were speaking without understanding it, and then the sailors laughed. Topol the pilot was enchanted with the islands and the feathered men who lived there. More on that in a minute. Don't worry. Don't freak out. There the Nibbin stayed for a moon, and the birdmen learned how to speak their own words and with talon feet to write. In joy for their new knowledge, they made Topol their lord, giving him their islands for the gift. Topol said he would return some day, but first he must find passage east to first hold so far away. That's the end. Topol the pilot continued north up the Nibbin River, named after a ship, and deep into the lush lands of Cyrodiil. Topol the pilot's travel and cartography of Tamriel eventually placed him at Lake Rumar. Now, if you look at where the, isle, or the, the big giant island of Cyrodiil is, the area that surrounds it, the body of water that surrounds it, is Lake Rumar. And that's located in the center of Cyrodiil and clotated, uh, uh, connected to the mainland by a long bridge at its western edge. So, it can only be surmised by his passage that the cat demons were ancient Khajiit and that Niben and its crew encountered along their journey uh, in search of home when they went north and made their mistake. There are many theories as to why the Khajiit would even be found here during Topal the Pilot's time period, but we're not going to delve into those theories tonight. There's a lot of different uh, little theories on why they'd be there. Hmm. Perhaps the feline beast encountered by Topol the pilot were cat creatures indigenous to the area of Nern who migrated into elsewhere, which is another thing. That's another theory. We'll just talk about that one super quick. The Khajiit were said to be native of all of Tamriel until all these other races started showing up. And that's when they went to elsewhere. Interesting. Very interesting and also very highly controversial, Jibs. Hmm. So, as my friend Jibs puts up an image of what a birdman looks like, Topol the pilot eventually befriended the native beast folk, including the now extinct and quite mysterious birdman. In the region, learning from them as well as teaching. He taught them to read and write and was subsequently gifted the eight islands where the imperial city and the white gold tower exist today. Topol the pilot would then travel south toward home, realizing the mistake that he made in traveling north into the bay in the first place. So, very, very interesting. To, to uh, close up this lore lesson, in the words of the father of the Nibbin, uh, written by Florin Jalil, besides the extraordinary bird creatures of present-day Cyrodiil, we have caught glimpses of ancient orcs, ancient cliff racers, ancient Argonians, 
and in this fragment, ancient Khajiit. Quite a history in a few lines of simple verse, all because a man failed to find his home and took all the wrong turns to retrace his steps back. Whew. All right. So we heard you like the hireling messages, so we thought, hey, let's throw them in the show. So there you go. There's your first one. <laughs> I think the way that came about was somebody had mentioned it, and we had already been thinking about that. Yeah. And then I started reading them again, as opposed to just... Um, like speeding through my mail and getting my stuff. Have you ever read those hireling messages? I need to, especially now. Oh my God. I've read a few. They are not as many freaking as hilarious. Yeah. So anyway, we thought we'd do a little, uh, a little bit on that. If you hate it, you could just tell Jibs because it was his freaking idea. Wait, I don't think it was. That was a phone conversation. That was I'm yours. Pretty sure it was. It was? Yep. Okay. Stop talking. You can direct all hate at Lore Seeker Cash. That's my Twitter with a K. All right, Cash. Lord Step back. Do your thing. I have a spell. Step back. I already did it. Do it. You did it. You're. I did the spell. Oh, I did it because I learned how to do it. Oh, well, you did it wrong. <laughs> now there's a scamp. Good job. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, this is lore lesson freaking fifty five, which blows our minds. By the way, um, that's a lot on lore. That's a lot of listening to you talk. <laughs> well played, sir. Bazinga. Uh yeah, that was that's pretty good. But I mean, here's the thing. This one is I would say it leans more towards an ESO 101 type of deal type of thing. Uh-huh. But we've gotten so many questions yeah. about the actual order. Like if you want to get Nat's ass on the way you should play ESO if you want to stick to the lore then this is the lore lesson for you. Okay. Um, this is more about the expansions and DLCs and how everything ties together than it is about any particular piece of lore that we've covered in the past or will cover in the future. So um, just take a listen because, I mean, even I cut, I got a bunch out of this just preparing for this lore lesson and this is how I'm going to run my Necro. Given I love the class and he truly like becomes okay. my main, which I feel he's going to. Right. This is how I'm going to run him. Okay. Um, with a small, a few small little tweaks. But anyway. Mm-hmm. We'll have to talk about that later because I'll, I'll probably do in, Yeah. So in what order should I complete the DLCs, expansions, and chapters in Elder Scrolls Online? Big, big question. So there is a relative chronological order to ESO's content. Many of the DLCs are independent of the main story and will not impact your experience very much. For the most part, you can play the content in any order you wish. So I want to give you that freedom right off the bat. Do not feel like you are locked in to anything. However, Here's the only reason for that, before however this. ESO has been designed to where the events of each DLC are taking place at relatively the same time. But, now I'm going to however it, but there is still some semblance of order to the DLC, and if you absolutely want to do it right, then this is going to help you. So, don't feel like you have to take notes on this. This will be posted on our website. 
as a guide so yep. that you can see what you're doing and you'll understand it. But if you are like, if you're super diligent about doing this and you don't want to miss anything and you want to hit all these little cues that lead you into the next storyline, this is the way to do it. This is the most logical way to play through the storylines and believe it or not, it's in the order that they were released. That's it. They're smart the way that they released all this stuff. So pay attention. The first one you want to do is the base game. And this is going to include the Fighters Guild and the Mages Guild quest lines. Are we going to do the Mages, the base game again with our Necros? Oh, hell yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm doing them for sure. Okay. Well, we're going to 100%. Got a full experience. Full experience. Okay. We're doing it. Okay. All right. Sorry to interrupt. You're, you're my Elder Scroll spouse. Oh, I you're hate doing it when you say that. All right. Yeah. I will be the woman, and I will tell you what you're going to do. <laughs> I already have enough. I don't know. Well, now you're going to get some more. Some. <laughs> okay. Base game, including Fighters Guild and Mages Guild quest lines. The second one, Craglorn. The third will be Imperial City. The fourth is Orsinium. We're going to go through all these like in detail, so do not fret. The fourth DLC or the uh, fifth DLC is Thieves Guild. Then there's the Dark Brotherhood, mm. followed by Shadows of the Hist, followed by Morrowind. Oh, my heart. Followed by Horns of the Reach, followed by Clockwork City. So the <laughs> Followed by Dragon Bones, Somerset, Wolf Hunter, Merkmire, where your galoshes, Ugh, yeah. and a finally Ratstone. Don't drink the water. Actually, well, yeah, finally is going to be elsewhere, but we're not quite there yet, folks. It's so close. I'm starting it it's elsewhere. It's so freaking close. I can seriously taste it on my lips. It's so good once it hits your lips. Mm. Okay. So, now you may find yourself in the spot where you do not necessarily have all the DLC. We completely understand there's some people that don't sub. Don't have the funds. Not fully committed. I get it. Your your reason is your own, but we have a solution for you. Um, you can also play the game in the following order just to see all of the main plot lines. So this would be the order in which you can purchase this DLC. This is the main DLC, the major plot lines for your story in Tamriel is with these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. With these eight. <laughs> Counting's hard. But you struck okay. up for a minute. All right. <laughs> the base game, including the Fighters Guild and Mages Guild. Orsinium. Morrowind. Clockwork City. Somerset. Dirty Merkmire. Wrathstone. Mm. And coming soon. Elsewhere. Those are the major plot lines that are going to give you everything that you need. Now, small little touches in the other ones. Craglorn, Imperial City, Thieves Guild, Dark Brotherhood, Shadows of the Hiss, Horns of the Reach, Dragon Bones, and Wolf Hunter. Not critical. They are not critical if you want to follow the storyline in the correct order. And like I said, do not worry. This is all on our website. 
Mm -hmm. First fun fact of the lore lesson slash ESL 101. If you own the base game only, you will start the game's tutorial and end up on your race's starter island. For instance, if you own Morrowind, but not Somerset, you'll be placed on Morrowind. And after the game's tutorial, if you own Somerset, you'll end up in Somerset after the tutorial, whether you choose to skip it or not. Hmm. Which is my least favorite starter zone. Yeah. Yeah. I like like the original starter zones. So like Bankerai and Canarthi's Roost and whatever the other one is. Um, I just, I dig those. Mm -hmm. I think it was the Orc Island. Forget the name of it. Uh, Bankerai? Bankerai, yeah. So what's the, what's the other one I missed? Mm. Anyway. I don't know. Somebody will look it up and call me a dipshit. <laughs> uh... So you're start. Oh, it's right in front of me. You wrote Starting it. zones. You want to know? <laughs> if you're Daggerfall you Covenant. If you're Daggerfall Covenant, it is Glen Umbra and you're starting in Stros Mackay. That's the one I was talking about. If you are Aldmeri Dominion and therefore have made the correct choice in faction, you're going to be gifted with starting Canarthi's Roost oh, you in said it. Oh, my gosh. I did say it. I'll call them all out. <laughs> I ain't scared. <laughs> The next one, uh, if you've chosen Evanheart Pact, then before you consider your life choices, you might end up in Stone Falls on Bleak Rock Isle. Should we? Yeah. Should we tease a little maybe what we're talking about doing when we have to open up the second Lord Seeker Guild for PC? You know? I don't know. Do you have some new idea that you can talk to me about? Go ahead. <laughs> have at oh, it. Oh, you don't remember, do you? No, you don't remember. Well, I'm now, like, remember I was talking how I don't normally have that much whiskey? Yeah. This is my third glass. Okay. All right. Well, so never could mind. do whatever you want, bro. Run the show. Never mind. You just no, ne- honestly, you, you never, go for it. You, no, I, I don't. I don't want to. I was just going to say, uh, as far as uh, Old Mary Dominion, Lore Seekers may not always be that way. Just saying. Well, you might as well tell them. You took the nut tickle and you turned it into a, here. Here's what we're doing. No, I did. There's a little tickle. There's a little tickle. You're such a D-bag. There's such a tickle. Moving it on. Anyway, carry on. There. I'm done now. Wow. That's like an official derail. We don't derail, bro. Did, did, I, did I throw you off? Did I throw you off your groove, Emperor? No, you didn't. Okay. As a new player, when you arrive at, ho- at your home starting zone, you will be greeted by a hooded figure. This quest will ask you to talk to the benefactor, which will start the base game's quest line. You might have a headache when you do this. The areas you will be in during this time will allow you to also pick up the Fighters Guild and Mages Guild quest lines, which will run parallel to the base game's quest lines. If you end up on a ship and there's somebody that's mumbling because he's gagged and bound, that is what we call in law enforcement is a clue. Okay. You're about to get bashed on the head. Anyway, each alliance encompasses five different regions and the overarching alliance zone quest lines will lead you through each of these regions. Once you've completed the last region in your chosen alliance's quest line or when you finish the quest entitled the Council of the Five Companions, great freaking quest, you will receive a quest called Messages Across Tamriel which sends you to Cold Harbor and thus begins 
the long quest line <laughs> in Cold Harbor that will finish <sighs> off the main storyline for you. Mm. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's really good. There's just a lot of crap you got to do for that one. But man, going through the main storyline is, is a lot of fun. Because like now I'm at the point where I can like switch and choose the things that I pick, and you know I could like save this faction and kill this faction. <laughs> right. So I'm trying like all kinds of different things, but I always go Bosmer. I always go full Bosmer. So there's that. Anyway, uh, the regions in Daggerfall Covenant, the regions are Glenumbra, Stormhaven, Rivenspire, Alakir Desert, and Bankarai. For the Aldmeri Dominion, for the Queen. Hashtag. Mm-hmm. For the Queen. That's right. There's Oridon, Grotwood, Greenshade, Malabal, Tor, and Reaper's March. And for the Stinky Ebonheart Pact, there's Stonefalls, <laughs> oh Deshaun, Shadowfen, Eastmar, Eastmarch, and the Rift. Which sounds a lot like a fart when you think of the Rift. Or the one you're creating with our listeners with the stinky references. Yeah, I, the rift to me sounds like like you're trying to sneak a fart. <laughs> so there's that. And just remember, silent but deadly never works. Everybody always knows because the person who dealt it is smiling. Just saying. Fun fact. Three whiskeys in. Three whiskeys in. Once you've completed the Alliance Zone quest lines and your main base game quest line... You will be given the quests Cadwell's Silver and Cadwell's Gold. These quests will lead you to complete the Alliance Zone quest lines of the two alliances that you did not choose upon creating your character. And all jesting aside, the other storylines are also outstanding. You get to explore all the other zones um, and do not miss it. Do not miss it. Have I finished Cadwell's Silver and Gold? No. Because Jibs and I started a podcast and a guild. And that takes some time. <laughs> that just so happens that takes a that long time. That takes some time. <laughs> so, no, I have not finished those. But it is, um, I have started both of them. And the, the quest in the other zones are freaking as epic as they are in our own uh, chosen alliance. So, do not, not do them. Um. So you don't have to complete the additional base game quest lines before starting any DLC, but there are definitely some cameos and various references from characters that you're going to see in subsequent DLC. So that's why it's worth completing those. Once you complete the base game's main quest lines, you'll be ready to tackle the DLC and then any expansion content as you choose. Man, I'd tell you what, not to cut in uh, too much here, but... It's worth going through those zones. I can't wait to go through Riften and and complete that zone. So, I mean, it's it's holy crap! It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. I I have to be completely honest here and tell you that I have not encountered a zone, maybe Cold Harbor. Mm, okay. As I think a little bit through it, but um, I don't hate it. But I probably dislike it more than all of the other ones because it's it's so dismal. Yeah. It's like super depressing. Yeah. Yet, like I need constant screaming. I, I need a cup of coffee and I need somebody to talk me through it. 
So I like you'll get a phone call when I'm in the middle of Cold Harbor because I'm depressed. Yeah. And I need a friend. I need to talk to somebody. Um, but my point is, I have not encountered a zone in ESO that has not blown my freaking mind. Yeah. There are some amazing ones. And like among my favorites, Malabal Tor probably has to be my favorite zone. It is yeah. so freaking gorgeous. And just lush and beautiful and full of deep lore. And Okay. Rabbit hole. That See, that's how it happens. It's not that hard. That's how it happens just, to cash. I just kind of threw an opinion in there, and you went full full right field. Yeah, dude, I'm full Bosmer. That's the way it works. Okay. So once you acquire new DLC or expansions for the game, they are usually available in one of two ways. And this goes for every DLC or expansion or chapter, anything that they do. Um, now, granted, you might have to purchase it unless it's free DLC, uh, most of the time, you got to purchase it. The first method is an NPC will summon, approach, or otherwise be available to your faction in your faction's main city to give you the quest to begin the new storyline. Um, the second method is usually go to the collections tab, and this happens a lot with just events too. Uh, the second method is go to the collections tab in game, find stories, and then choose to begin your story from there. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about each DLC and expansion in detail, just to give you a little bit of internal lore, if you'll, if you'll have it, because I mean we're kind of not doing a traditional lore lesson here, so we can bring you this. So I want to bring a little bit of background for each of these zones for you, so that you'll kind of understand them a little bit better. So, Craglord. This was not a paid DLC. It was added to the game as a post-base game edition with a new zone and new quest lines. So, the zone of Craglorn was originally described as a four-player adventure zone, and it's still, for the most part, that way. Um, it was intended to be completed as a group, but it has since been updated to allow for solo play. So when you're running through there, doing your crafting surveys or whatever, actually running through the content, you will notice some of the stuff kicks your butt. That's because those are the areas. And when you enter those areas, it will say entering group zone or something to that effect. Right. Uh, the zone is considered standalone content since it was um, the first content to be released after the base game. And you can complete it after the main story quest line. You can complete it anytime you want, but that's how kind of how it was intended. You can begin the quest line by speaking to any stargazer in your alliance's capital city. Isn't it crazy how that mm -hmm. place has developed over the years from what it used to be? Oh, for sure. Like, and I'm just going to throw this out there. If you have any um, crafting surveys or anything in that zone, if you don't already know the route, then just sell those okay noted or take the damn road just put it that way <laughs> don't think that you can do just as the crow flies because you're gonna punch yourself in the face and then you're gonna be mad and you're gonna send me mail i feel like this is a personal experience you've had it's a very personal experience right. i'm telling you right now i touched a button follow the damn roads <laughs> 
<laughs> because oh. it will drive you bat poop crazy. That's what you've been doing in crack Take All my right. word for it. Follow the roads. Don't think you can get up that hill because you can't. Okay, I got to move on. Imperial City. This is a PvP zone. This is where you pull out your PvP penis based zone with a PvE quest line. This content is considered standalone and will not largely run into any other storylines of the game. To begin the Imperial City questline, travel to your alliance's home gates within Cyrodiil and speak to an Imperial City captain. They will provide you with the starting quest. You will then travel to the center of Cyrodiil and enter the Imperial City. But be careful! Because other players may be on the prowl. They will be on the prowl. They will kill you. Yeah. They're freaking kitty cat mean. I'm just telling That's you That's happened that to me right many a time. Now. You go in yeah. there, and I'm actually really glad you, you posted that, because I've always, you know, I read about Imperial City. I've been in there many times, but yet I find myself s- still clueless when it comes to, you know, what it's meant for as far as the lore side of it, so. Dude, Cyrodiil is freaking awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That I, place is super fun. Yeah. So, and during the five-year anniversary event where we got to go into PvP, the PvP zones, and do those quests, Mm -hmm. I was loving it. I had a lot of fun doing that. It reminded me of old-school PvP zones and other MMOs that I've played in the past, Mm -hmm. where there's always the air of, oh my god, I might be getting stalked right now. Right. Yeah, I mean that's definitely a thing. And then I like when I'm in PvP like that, then I drop into the thing where when I get attacked and I do the JoJo the circus clown thing where I can't freaking figure out what I'm doing. It's like and I, fr- get, I, I get died. <laughs> it's like I you- get died every time. <laughs> it's like everyone's worst fear when you're getting ganked. It's just your your body. It's like your mind wants to do something. Your body's trying to do something else. And during that process, you forget every single skill you have on every bar. I know, and I'm not. I'm seriously not a terrible player. <sighs> I'm not too bad. And so anyway. Okay. Uh, Orsinium. This DLC gives you access to the full city of Orsinium and the zone of Rothgar. Freaking awesome zone. The quest line guides you through the exploration and the deep culture of Tamriel's orc race. And to begin the Orsinium quest line, you're going to speak to Stuga. Yes. Yes. We know you know who she is. We killed her here once. You're going to speak to Stuga. In any starting city, and uh, she will allow you to travel to Rothgar. She'll actually point you in the right direction to travel to Rothgar, and you'll be very happy for leaving her. You know, she's actually not too bad. Once she gets past the introductory line, I remember I talked to her, uh, I think it was a week ago, and she goes into everything, why we need to go there. I'm like, okay, now see, this is so much better now, Stuga. I can get past the whole introductory thing now. She's a horrible woman. (laughs) Okay. Thieves Guild. Yeah. This is actual guild-based DLC. There's an entire new guild that you join with new guild skill lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so guild-based DLC without characters found in other quest lines. This is a largely stand-alone expansion. Mm-hmm. So to begin the Thieves Guild, you're going to go to any outlaw's refuge and speak to Quinn. Super cutie. Who will start the quest line and take you to the new zone in Hughes Bane. Uh, then there's the Dark Brotherhood. This is also guild-based DLC with characters found in other quest lines. Uh, 
To begin the Dark Brotherhood questline, you're going to find Amelie Crow in any Outlaw's Refuge and accept the quest, which will lead you to the new DLC zone in the Gold Coast and will also lead you to a life of murder. Murder. Just saying. It's one of the greatest stories. It, it's going to blow your mind. It's, it's dark. There's death. Lots and lots of death and grinding. It's good. It's good. It's good. Then there's the Shadows of the Hiss. This game pack brought two new dungeons to the game, which were the Ruins of Mazatoon. <laughs> that place! And Cradle of Shadows. There's no major story development, and this content can, can be completed in any order that you want. And my Kajidi Kateri is going crazy. Come on, dude. That's my goal. They're just really happy about it. Jeez. Okay. Uh, Morrowind. Okay. Mm. Morrowind. This was a full chapter release for ESO and introduces an enormous zone, Morrowind, and a new player class, The Horden, and more than 30 hours of main story content. Now, I said main story content. A new trial was added to the game with this chapter. This chapter contains major storylines that should be played in chronological order. Following the list top to bottom, like we said before, if at all possible. Major storyline. Mm -hmm. So, do not skip this one. Horns of the Reach. This game pack brought two new dungeons to ESO. They were Bloodrot Forge and Falkreath Hold. There are no major storyline developments in this content can, can be completed in any desire order that you want. Clockwork City and your introduction to Sotha Seal. He's so beloved, but corrupt. Anyway. Clockwork City is a DLC game pack released for ESO in October 2017. In this DLC, you can either or you can enter Sotha Seal's legendary creation and explore his mysterious mechanical world, which is actually really freaking awesome. Um, it's touted as standalone content. But the chapter does contain major storylines that should be played through in chronological order, following that list from top to bottom, if possible. There are definitely things that will lead you to the next portions. Yeah. Somerset. Yeah. Somerset. Yep. Man. So you want to play that one in order. I've been there many times, mainly during events. I haven't done the story yet, really because I just... I wanted to kind of hold off, and so that was a great time, you know, with everything coming with Necro, but, um, man, that's such a cool place. Yeah. Clockwork City's freaking awesome. It's about as close to the feel of mechanical, like, you know, the, the Dwimmer side. You know, if, like, if you were in a city and it was just full of Dwimmer stuff, you know, like, that's kind of the vibe that it puts out. Right. And if you, um, if you have not heard the city of, the, the uh, story of Clockwork City... Please go and listen to our lore lesson on Sotha Seal. It will explain why I think he's a douchebag. Yep. Anyway, I, I get hate mail about that, by the way. Do you really? Yes, I do. People send messages about, why do you why are you such a hater, dog, about Sotha Seal? Do they use two Gs or uh, one? Just the one. Oh, okay. That's super random. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm not going to go into it, but... Yeah, so there's that. Okay. I'm point of contention with so the seal. Okay. Integrity means a lot to cash. This next one's really anyway. special to me. You know why? 
Because the word bone is in it? I thought this was a family show. Dragon Bones! <laughs> yeah, I want to know why. Because this is right right before this launched. I mean, we're like weeks, maybe two weeks before this launched. The show launched. Or Seeker started. I know. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. Can't believe yep. I've sat here and listened to you talk all this time. I know. I don't even hate you yet. That's what's awesome. I try not to hate you. <laughs> How's that working out? Not real good. I love you, buddy. All right. <laughs> Dragon Bones, this DLC pack for ESO introduces two new dungeons, Fang Lair and Scale Color Peak. One of which I'm going to conquer on Vet Hard Mode No Death Speedrun. There's no major story development, and this content can be completed in any desired order. Quite literally provides you with mm, the two most difficult Vet dungeons and arguably the two most uh, difficult dungeons in ESO. Agreed. They're pretty freaking hard. Um, Somerset is the next one. This is a major chapter release for Elder Scrolls Online. It hit the floors in May of 2018. It's a freaking year ago. (laughs) Yeah, man. It's nuts. It's nuts to think about that. I mean, it makes sense because they're on on a schedule. But I can't even freaking believe it's been a year since Somerset. Oh, I know. It's crazy. And yet, you know what? It's been a year, but yet I'm finding myself excited to go back and quest in Somerset again. Yeah, same. No? This whole game makes me excited to go back through with a new character. Oh, yeah. So, Somerset. Um, this part of the storyline sends you to the Somerset Isles and the ancestral home of the Altmer. Aldmer, your choice. Early, later. Um. Anyway, that for the first time since... Elder Scrolls Arena in 1994. Yep. So, it was a big deal. Kind of a big deal. It was a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, Somerset has major storyline plot, major storyline plot that also should be played in chronological order. So, make sure you go through the list that we talked about above. And then the next one is Wolf Hunter. This DLC game pack introduces two, yet two more new dungeons. Good dungeons. March of Sacrifices and Moon Hunter Keep, which are both. Freaking awesome and werewolf themed. Do not miss out. There is no major story development here, and you can complete these two in any order in which you desire. Moon Hunter Keep on Vet. Holy crap. Stupid. Yeah. Yeah. The newer DLC on Vet is just freaking nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Merc Meyer, bring your galoshes. Mm. This DLC game pack for ESO launched in October of 2018. And brought the new zone of Merkmire, the home of the Argonian race, to the game. This chapter also contains major storylines that should be played in chronological order. Follow the list that we talked about above. Then there's Wrathstone. This is a DLC game pack for ESO featuring two more dungeons, Frost Vault and the Depths of Malatar. Also incredibly challenging. This content includes major storylines for the next chapter of ESO. I cannot say this with any more emphasis. You gotta play these two. You gotta go through Frost Vault and Depths of Malatar before you play elsewhere. Absolutely. 
So what I would do if you're at this point is I would do Abner Tharn's introduction quest. Do his quest and then go through Frostfault and Depths of Malatar. Yep. They're really good. They're very, very and good. Slow down and absorb the story. Yep. And explore. And if you can't find a guild to do that with, come to the Lore Seekers and just say it. I want to go through the dungeons and experience the lore. I'm not going to have a problem. Yep. Okay. The next chapter for ESO is not out yet, my friends, and we all know hang on, this. Hang on, Elsewhere. Hang on, hang on. No, the, is that the Return of the Dwemer? Is that what that is? Did you, did you have a mini stroke right now? That's what that is. Is that what that is? Because if Rich is still in chat, he's going to bitch slap you. Maybe. <laughs> Bring you right back around where you're supposed to be. Um, oh. So the next chapter, obviously, is elsewhere. We're all looking forward to it. Can't freaking believe it. Uh, traveling to the ancestral lands of the Khajiit. This content includes major storylines for the next chapter of ESO and should be played in chronological order from the list that we have talked about above. Yep, there you go. So, big mixture oh. of an ESO 101 for some of our newer players, but even veteran players... I guess I consider myself a veteran player at this point. Oh, he's... Is he... What? What's he do? Are, are you okay? Stretching for it. We're all good. No, there was a <laughs> werewolf outside that I want to go murder. Oh. All right. Yeah, well, uh, I, I had to... Bring your uh, silver bullets. I had, to, I had to draw the blinds, otherwise the werewolf is going to ruin my path to lichdom. Oh, I'm excited about this. I know, buddy. So this is for you. I was looking through, once again, I was looking through the Tales of Tamriel. I'm going to pick it up right here, show our live listeners. Tales of Tamriel, book two, the lore. Absolutely incredible, amazing book. If you don't have it and you have the means, buy book one, the land, buy book two, the lore. They are really, really cool. And I was just kind of looking through to get some ideas for a lore lesson this week. And I came across a metric crap ton of stuff on necromancy that is really difficult to find online. But it was right there in my book. So shame on me for not having, a you know, being on YouTube right before I go to bed instead of reading like I probably should be doing. But anyway, tonight, The Path to Lichdom. Lore lesson number 56. My yeah. gosh. Wahaha. My heart. Wahaha. <laughs> so mages who have mastered the art of necromancy and dark magic have the ability to prolong their lifespan and become powerful, immortal beings known as liches. And yes, you have run into them in pretty much every Elder Scrolls game that there is. And I'm going to start the lore lesson with a reading from Dark Magic... The three pretexts from the Ariat Serpent. It is unfortunate that the arcane discipline known as dark magic has acquired such a pejorative name in the common parlance, and it tends to relegate the practitioners into that class of sorcerer slanderously known as evil wizards. To counteract such dangerous libels, it is handy to keep in mind the following three pretexts. The first, insofar as it negates, drains, and preys upon the magicka and power of other mages, 
knowledge of dark magic is a necessary safeguard that enables the reining in of rogue sorcerers. The second pretext. Insomuch as it replicates some of the deleterious effects of spells cast by inimical Daedra, knowledge of dark magic is a useful tool for learning how to camp how to counter set effects. And the third pretext, whereas its application is regarded by the ignorant as frightful and loathsome, the use of dark magic to inflict condign punishment upon transgressors is a deterrent to crime and therefore a social good. That should silence the critics. I thought that was kind of funny because here is a necromancer, the Aureate Serpent, who is saying that necromancy and the, the practice of dark magic is a social good. So It's all from the point I of view, just like Star Wars. Yes. So it does bring up some things about the process and the fact that although it may be evil, you should respect it. And the process of lichdom. The creation of a lich has been known to be obtained in several ways. Many of these vary widely in comparison to but have been successful nonetheless. During the Oblivion Crisis, a mage by the name of Celadane attempts to surpass death by using an hourglass called the Sands of Resolve. This magical artifact was to remain on his body until his transformation to Lichdom was completed. On the contrary, in Skyrim, the Dragon Priests were known to ascend into Lichdom by draining a person's life force... <laughs> Oh, it gets way worse, dude. Oh, man. That's so good. <laughs> Dragon priests would drain a person's life force and transfer it back into their own bodies. Apparently, the life force of another manifested in different forms. In one example, the Dragon Priest Hevnarak replenished his own life force by transferring human blood back into his body. So, like a really violent vampire. For sure. And I don't know if it was like, you know, across his veins or if it was by a vampiric means, but nonetheless, a very violent blood transfusion back into his body. Wow. Yeah. In practicing lichdom in the second era, a mage must be a master, uh, must be a master of both necromancy and the dark arts. And there's going to be more on that here coming up when it comes to lichdom. So we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, we're going to do a little reading from the Practical Necromancy. This is chapter 22, I assume. Summoning, binding, and questioning the spirits of Aetherius. So this gets pretty deep. Aetherius, as you remember, was the immortal plane, the realm of which Daedra, such as the Nine Divines, originate. Aetherius is the source of all magic and the creation of all in Mundus. And it reads... Previously, we've discussed the reanimation of crude matter for labor. It is time to delve into deeper, more rewarding subjects. Aside from the traditional ritual components, you will need 1. The hide of a slaughtered animal, cleaned and dried in the approved manner. 2. A measure of dried nightshade crushed with a pestle of pure ebony. And 3. An animus geode containing the tortured spirit of man or myrrh. Soul gem. Jibs. Yep. That is a soul gem. Yep. I thought you'd like that. I love it. 
So in order to do so, you must prepare a circular ritual space no less than three paces across, isolate the space with a circle of one chalk, one part salt, one part ash. In the center of the space, prepare your ritual tools. Jam a pike or spear into the earth point up. Write the name of the spirit you wish to summon on the piece of animal hide. Be sure you have no injuries that might spill blood in the circle. That would be a freaking problem. (laughs) (laughs) Trapping one's own soul in a summoning circle is rarely fatal. And it tells you to see chapter 25 for exceptions. (laughs) But it is sure to provoke a mockery of your peers. So after desecrating the circle, light the candles in the following order. East, west, north, south. Burn a pinch of nightshade in the ritual bowl. Impale the animal hide onto the pike. Finally, take up the animus geode and release its power while holding in your mind an image of the deceased. Once summoned, the spirit is tethered to the animus geode. The geode will act as a beacon, allowing you to call the bound shade to your side whenever you wish. That's necromancy. I love it. Essentially. Okay, so to start the process of becoming a lich, the aspiring lich must steal the souls from their owners in the most painful way possible. (laughs) Oh, man. Yes. (laughs) As the increased pain and torment from their sacrifices powers the purest forms of lichdom. As an additional part of the process, a relic of some evil significance or a powerful good relic that can be corrupted must be utilized to focus a spell to extract the souls from the living. The more powerful the relic, the better result when the soul is rendered. That is some Ooh, evil shit. Right? Oh, Why do they have to be so mean? Oh, the more mean I the mean, they are, the more power they get. Oh, now, ouch. a necromancer and the things that a necromancer reanimates is evil. But a lich is not only a practicer of neck an expert in necromancy but an expert in black magic man and we're going to kind of cover all that right now that's why it's so damn evil so the effects of lichdom where most necromancers spend vast amounts of time learning to raise the dead one who has ascended to lichdom is an expert at the practice for this reason liches can utilize several different schools of magic in conjunction with the raising of the dead. So one who has achieved lichdom can readily interchange spells from the various schools of magic, illusion, destruction, alteration, conjuration, restoration, mysticism, thaumaturgy, and enchanting. To match the situation they're in, all while raising the dead to fight at their side. The lich is truly a master of magic. Unlike the necromancer in general, one who has achieved lichdom takes on the appearance of the undead. So they have decaying flesh, exposed bones, skull-like facial features, sunken eyes, or no freaking eyeballs, or similar features. Most liches wear ornate robes or armor, jewelry, amulets, and typically they carry a staff to aid them with spells in combat. So they're usually magicka-based. Fun fact, 
a rare form of the lich is called another lich, which takes a transparent ghost-like form and are known to be weaker than regular liches. Kind of like a ghost lich. In combat, liches tend to prefer a ranged style for obvious reasons. A favored form of their magic is destruction magic, where they use flames or electricity to attack while utilizing summon dead skeletons or corpses to divert their enemy's attention while they strike from afar. Ranged combat. That's the way. I love that. <laughs> okay, so Ascendancy, the pathway to lichdom. This is a short guide oh, yeah. detailing the steps required to becoming a lich. Good one. This is by Golvig, the Ascendant. I take it you've read this, Jibs? Oh, yeah. It's good. This is Don't good. try this at home. <laughs> or maybe do. You know what thing. I'm doing after we record. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It reads, At last, I have discovered the secrets to casting off the shackles of mortality. I record them here for those who dare to follow in my footsteps. Pledge yourselves to me. Swear everlasting allegiance, and you too can ascend to this lofty plane. The first element is the will to force your body into death and beyond. Without this ultimate power, mind over body, the transformation cannot begin. Few have the courage for even this initial step. Many falter and are lost when pain and horror overcome what little willpower they had. Given the strongest of wills, great necromantic knowledge is next required. Willpower provides the force, but knowledge focuses the will and directs the glorious transformation. Only the most intelligent and daring of necromancers delve deeply enough into forbidden knowledge, gathering the spellcraft needed to achieve blessed lichdom. I am one of those. A plentiful source of souls is needed as well. These must be wrenched from their owners as painfully as possible. The higher degree of torment among your sacrifices the purer the ascent to lichhood, the greater the power gathered in undeath. You ascend on a glorious stairway of screams and horror. God, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my okay. God, I have to go take a bath in holy water. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Lastly, a mighty magical relic is needed. An evil-aligned relic will but a good aligned artifact that can be perverted to this purpose is ideal. This relic is the casting focus for Urello's loathsome coercion, the spell employed to wrench the required souls from their erstwhile owners. The more powerful the relic, the more painful the soul rending. Will, knowledge, soul, and power. These are the required elements. Of this most exalted of transformation. Tempt it if you dare. Oh. <laughs> End scene. End scene. <laughs> Jibs, it's the Lord. Keep your mouth shut. It's my turn. Okay, Dad. <laughs> so this one should not take too long. I know we were a little bit long winded and. Some of our folks are actually okay with long shows, but um, yeah, this should be uh, a longer show. 
But the lore lesson will not take up too much of your time. I wanted to hit, I was really considering doing one certain topic, but I think I'm going to hold until I can see more of elsewhere and really gauge how much they talk about this particular topic. That particular topic is the Akaviri. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's as far as I'll go in telling you that the Akaviri is mentioned in elsewhere, and it makes total sense. But um, you can yep. look for a future very robust lore lesson on the Akaviri. Right now, I am going to talk about somebody who you already know. This is non-spoilerish. This information was already out there prior to the game launching, uh, prior to the expansion launching, and it was this was actually brought out there by Zoss themselves. So I'm basically summarizing information that was already available, but a lot of people don't read this stuff, so I wanted to bring it to you anyway. But anyway, you know that Abner Tharn's relative, Euraxia Tharn, is a major part of the storyline in Elsewhere. Well, she has some people that are, I won't necessarily say under her employ, but I'll say that are working with her and are currently allied with her. Now, that may change in the future, but let's talk a little bit about how the storyline is currently unfolding. And do not worry, this lore lesson is absolutely 100% spoiler-free. And I will never endeavor to sour your experience in elsewhere. Until later. During our spoiler episode. I will warn you. So let's get more acquainted with some of the characters that you're going to encounter as you embark upon your journey in the native lands of the Khajiit. We're going to detail two of the major players in Euraxia, the Usurper Queen's ranks. The first mm-hmm. one is Zumog Foom. If you are oh, on man. Twitter, yeah, dude. Oh, man. If you're on Twitter, then you know who Zumog Foom the Orc is. He actually took over Elder Scrolls Online's Twitter for the day. And it was a really cool exchange between uh, Zumog Foom and the people. And then the second person we're going to talk about is not a person at all. It is a fearsome dragon by the name of Mulamnir. So we'll talk about yeah. him too. Yeah. Uh, But those two were both detailed in the Meet the Character um, articles that took place on the Elder Scrolls Online's website. So the first one we're going to cover is Zumogfu. Serving Euraxia Tharn at her side as her court wizard, Zumogfu is an orc necromancer and the master at necromancy. As a matter of fact, he's deemed himself the Lord of the Dark Arts, he hails from the harsh wilds of northern Rothgar. Zumog Foom is dedicated to the study and progression of necromancy throughout the land. The orc necromancer has been rumored to be a ranked member in the Order of the Black Worm, and also that he had been taught the art of necromancy by Menomarco himself, but that information is currently unsubstantiated. Zumog Foom has been at Euraxia Tharn's side ever since her invasion of Rimen, and she holds his council in very, very high regard. Because of his lofty position with the Usurper Queen, Foom is afforded the luxury of powerful resources, including a small army of underling necromancers. The rising power of Euraxia and her forces has caused an influx of these, influx of these necromancers to join her cause. 
but mostly because they want to practice their craft and learn from the master of the dark arts, Zumog Foom himself. Mm. So that's a big part of why a lot of these new necromancers are coming to Euraxia's aid is because they want to learn from Zumog Foom. Right. At the center of their preparations, Euraxia and Foom have created several cadaver forges to fortify her army. Grave robbing, as you know, particularly from mass graves in the uh, during the Kanatan flu outbreak, there's these mass graves of Khajiit that were put together. Well, robbing these graves has become rampant in the region of elsewhere. I think we've already talked about how easy it is to rob graves. Yeah, elsewhere. they just cover, uncover the rocks. They cover I mean, the rocks. They don't, yeah. Don't dig Prime pickings, man. Dude, it's siesta time. They do not have time to dig holes. It's like, oh, huh. it's okay. You put some rocks on top. It will eventually go away. I mean, yeah. Right. It's biodegrade. So, <laughs> so corpses are a large commodity in elsewhere just because of their practices and burying their dead or lack mm -hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. So the reason for this is most likely to feed Foom's forges and create an army of the undead. So you wonder why this large operation is taking place in elsewhere in the first place. Eh, corpses are easy to get. So it has been said that one can feel the aura of death whenever they are in the presence of Zumog Foom. And there have been rumors amongst his own troops of a much grander plan by Zumog Foom. Much more than what Queen Euraxia has in mind. But these rumors, mind you, in extracting any plausible intelligence from Foom's minion have proven to be very unreliable because they're very uh, tight-lipped about it. Hashtag season of the dragon. Right. So it seems to me, and it's not just it's not just Zumog Foom. The next person I'm going to talk about may also have ulterior motives. The next non-person, the next beast. And that's a perfect segue to Mulamir, Mulamnir the dragon. As part of her twisted plan to invade elsewhere, Queen Euraxia and Zumog Foom, with a little unexpected help from Abner Tharn, pun intended, dragons have been unearthed from the depths of the halls of Colossus. Not new information, people. No spoilers. One of the most powerful dragons of those that emerged from the halls is named Mulamnir. His name literally means strong serve hunt in the dragon's language. He's a Gosh. massive beast armored in azure colored scales. That's blue. I had to look it up. Appreciate that. Not a color guy. Anyway. Mm. At the summoning of Queen Euraxia, quite possibly from the fact that she assisted in releasing Mulamnir and many of his fellow dragonkind, Mulamnir vowed an alliance between his fellow dragon brothers and the Usurper Queen. Alliances and agreements between dragons and other species is very unheard of when the history of the beasts is considered. Most dragons in ancient tales were very solitary, 
they competed mostly among themselves. Even though they ravaged the land, they competed mostly amongst themselves. Mm. However, the group of dragons that emerged from the halls of Colossus on that day were very different. They were united in a way that dragons had never been united before. They were bonded as brothers, and they seemed to have some type of a shared purpose. Perhaps the reason for the isolation they had experienced being locked away in the massive halls lent to a sense of companionship and perhaps even family. Interesting. That's opinion. I'm just saying that's just my opinion. Uh Uh But when they came out, it was not like the dragons of old. They were united. Yeah. Not normal for that to be that way. Correct. So Mulamnir is a massive beast with an incredible arsenal of skills and strength in combat. I will not go into it too much, but you will run into Mulamnir in the storyline. Mm-hmm. His physical power is very impressive. He's He's been witnessed accomplishing unmatched feats on the battlefield. For one example alone, he landed in the middle of a large contingent of Khajiiti soldiers and obliterated them with nothing but his teeth, claws, and tail. Didn't use anything else. But in addition to the dragon's physical prowess, he is also adept in storm magic, fire breathing, and traditional weapons of the dragon's voice. Mulamnir, larger and more powerful than his dragon brethren, is absolutely a flying weapon of mass destruction. Wow. Okay. I have a newfound respect for this guy already. <laughs> He's pretty badass. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in addition to all that, dragons have an incredibly high degree of intellect that rivals or quite possibly surpasses that of men or myrrh. Knowledge in lore, especially keen to the phases of the moons in elsewhere, Master and Secunda, Mulamnir keeps some degree of secrecy between himself and his fellow dragons. In his alliance with Queen Euraxia, he has proven to be a point of frustration for her and her leadership because they don't quite know if Mulamnir has a hidden agenda. Neither do we. Hopefully we'll find out. Hmm. So for many Khajiit that refuse to accept the rule of Queen Euraxia, they face the wrath of Mulamnir and his dragon kin. However, the dragon leader only seems willing to lend one dragon at a time to Euraxia's forces, further causing frustration to her leadership, as the whole of the dragon horde could undoubtedly conquer the entire region in no time at all. This, however, may be a blessing in disguise, because the dragons don't seem to care much about distinguishing between the Khajiit and Euraxia's forces. He lays waste, all the dragons lay waste to the battlefield with no regard for their own friendly soldiers. As a matter of fact, the dragons dragons seem to kind of revel in the destruction. They don't care who they kill. They just want to kill. Right. (laughs) Led by uh, Mulemur, the horde of the recently released dragons is an immeasurable boon to Euraxia's forces. Through his study of the dragons, Euraxia's royal strategist by the name of Centurion Jagus has also recently learned of an additional fact, straight from the maw of Mjolnir himself. Mjolnir does not claim to be the lead dragon. As a matter of fact, he defers his leadership 
to an even more powerful dragon called Calgrantid. Not mm -hmm. much of this creature is currently known. So, yeah. Ooh. As I said before, both of these amazing characters, both Zumog Foom and Mjolnir, were featured in Meet the Character articles on Elder Scrolls Online's official website. That is my source for this particular lore lesson. Wow, man. Yeah. Any more than that, and I'd be spoiling some of the story, and I absolutely will not do that for you. you got to go and experience it for yourself. Yeah. I, you know, as we get ready to wrap things up, I, uh, first off, nice pull, because I really thought we were doing the act of reading. All right. So here's the deal. I have so many ideas for lore lessons. But as I'm going through elsewhere, I am noticing the massive amount of lore that is there for the Khajiit. And all, all these small little references to um, how the Khajiit become Khajiit and all the different types. I'm not talking about a, a lesson on the birds and the bees. So, okay. And apparently Jibs has to urinate because there's like a... 72 font I have to pee in our in our notes. So um I guess I'm on my own for a little bit. <laughs> He's such a douche. Anyway, there's so much Kajidi lore going on in elsewhere that I figured we need a refresher on the Khajiit. Only this time we, we covered the Khajiit in lore lesson number eleven, which was months ago. So I wanted to dive a little bit deeper in Khajiiti lore tonight and talk to you about some of the things that you, that they're going to reference. There are no spoilers once again, but there are a few things, there are a lot of things that are referenced in elsewhere that I think this could bring some understanding to for you when you encounter them. So this is a deeper dive into our favorite felines in elsewhere. We're going to examine a bit of their lifestyle, religion, history, in order to give you a more in-depth understanding during your playthrough of Elsewhere. And as you can see, I have an Elfique right here in my hands. <laughs> I was trying to step on my soundboard. Anyway, so let's start. We're going to cover some of the terms that you should probably be familiar with before we get too, too far into the weeds into the Khajiit. Because I will say the Khajiit are probably one of the most complicated races that there are in elsewhere. It's important to note that much of the Khajiit pantheon is a variant of the deities found throughout the whole of Tamriel. For example, the Khajiit word uh, or the Khajiit would worship... Alkosh, who's mentioned a lot in Elsewhere, where a High Elf would worship Akatosh, but both are the same. So I'm going to clear up some of that stuff. So let's let's go over some terms that will help you, I think, understand a little bit more. Um, an Equinine, also known as Anakina, is a Khajiiti kingdom in Northern Elsewhere, and that's the one that's been released as Northern Elsewhere. That's what you're going to be adventuring in. The region is filled with harsh badlands and arid plains. The next term is Auriel. Auriel is the king of the Aldmer and the elven variant of Akatosh. Now, this one's kind of hard to absorb, but Auriel is the king of the Aldmer. Aldmer. 
which means the most early High Elves, and the Elven variant of Akatosh. Most Altmer, Altmer, and Bosmer to this day claim that they are direct descendants of Auriel. If you do any quest lines in Grotwood, there are a ton of reference from the Wood Elves to Auriel. Akatosh. Akatosh is yet another name for Auriel, the chief deity of the Nine Divines and present in most Tamrielic regions. The next term is the Lunar Lattice. This one is all over the new content. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in relation to the morphology of the Khajiit, there are distinct differences in how they look based upon the phases of the moons on the day they were born. Within weeks of their birth, the morphology begins begins to take shape. We will get in depth on this a little bit later. Let's talk about the moons, Masser and Secunda. Masser is the greater of the Nerns, of greater of Nerns two moons. Masser is also known as Jod by the Khajiit and is considered an attendant spirit of the mortal plane and also subject to the bounds of mortality. Mm. Jod in Elnofax, and remember Elnofax is the ancient language of Nern spoken by the Elnifei or the old gods. That means big moon god. So Jod means the big moon god. Now on the contrary, Secunda is the lesser of Nern's two moons. Jibs, that means the smaller one. Okay. Okay. Secunda, also known as Joan, is also considered an attendant spirit and therefore subject to the bounds of mortality. Joan, in the Elmofex, means little moon god. Big moon, little moon. Not so hard. And also Master and Secunda, Jod and Joan. All it is is a Khajiit being little smart asses changing the names of stuff. That's pretty much all this is. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, if it helps you understand the Khajiit a little bit more, then I think I think we're in a good place. So the first fun fact of our lore lesson is that Akatosh is considered to be the first of the gods to form. The very first god ever was Akatosh. Making the process easier and more obtainable for other spirits to follow. So it's kind of like the first one to jump off the cliff. All the rest of the people behind him are like, eh, no big deal. We can go. <laughs> so after Akatosh appeared, all the other various pantheons of the world emerged. And now my Khajiit is getting so much incessant love for me that one of her eye boogers is on my finger. Ew. I have nowhere to wipe it. That's gross. That's part of the lore lesson now. It's ingrained need, in our lore lesson. Fix that. Thank you, Lucy. Meow. Anyway. All right. Let's talk about the gods of the Khajiit. You'll kind of get a kick out of this because they change the names, but mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. the same person. <laughs> so, All right. One that you're going to hear a lot is Alkosh. Alkosh is known as the dragon king of the cats and an inequinine deity. This deity is a variation of the Altmer's Ariel and an Akatosh-type hero from very early time in Khajiiti culture. So, Alkosh equals Akatosh. If you couldn't figure that out, you want to take a screwdriver. <laughs> Just kidding. You don't want to do that. Anyway, thanks for laughing, Jibs, and for all the support. That's going to make you feel awkward to work. Yeah. 
It did. All right, good. So worship of Alkosh continues to dominate Kajidi culture, especially in the region of elsewhere. In races other than the Khajiit, Alkosh or Akatosh is depicted as a large dragon with feline features. However, the Khajiit consider Alkosh to be a really big cut. Super weird. He's a cut. Mm -hmm. That's what he is. I don't know what your people are thinking. You're crazy. The next god is Azura. Azura is the goddess of dusk and dawn. Azura is the goddess to whom the Khajiit attribute their mortal form and their close connection to the lunar lattice. Azura shares many characteristics with the goddess Azura of other cultures. And they're just spelt differently. One has an H at the end and the other doesn't. But the Khajiit consider the two to be different entities. Oh, it's so weird. This is ours, not yours. Leave it alone. <laughs> I slap your hand. <laughs> so Azura is represented in Khajiiti culture as a Khajiit with oversized eyes and pupils that resemble the stars. I love Khajiit. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So next is Bandar. Bandar the pariah is regarded as more of a physical manifestation than it is a god. Bandar is attributed to the cleverness and the wit of the Khajiit in response to the vast amounts of suffering in their past. Now, you remember that a lot of the Khajiit will refer to Bandari. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Followers of Bandar. Mm -hmm. Bandar is mostly attributed to the keen thinking of the Khajiit, which allows for them to formulate last-minute plans, that sounds very slowed-like, to foil the machinations of their foes, be it man or mer. Yeah, I didn't really understand that one either, but <laughs> I guess I'll have to dig into that one a little bit more. I'm still processing. I'm still processing that one. So the last god is Kanarthi, the goddess of the winds. Kanarthi is said to give life to her kin, Joan and Jode, on their path through the sky. Kanarthi is said to grant the Khajiit their swiftness. Kanarthi is represented by a large hawk and is popular among sailors and farmers. And you'll remember that one of our starting zones is Kanarthi's Roost. Kanarthi's Roost, yeah. Yeah. So a fun fact, when, Khajiit, when a Khajiit dies, it is said that their soul is flown by Kanarthi to the sands behind the stars. Yep, that's going to happen, and uh, you're going to experience that in elsewhere. You are. That, that, that content. That's pretty cool. That's right. So as I scroll down and I told you that was the last god, I lied. There's a crap ton more. Oh, okay. So there's Jode. Jode is known as the big moon god. We also we already talked about Masser. Mm -hmm. Jode is just one aspect of the lunar lattice and is revered differently by each subspecies of Khajiit as their own mortal manifestation is reliant upon these aspects of the moons. Once again, we will cover that in a little more detail later. Joan is known as the little moon god, also Secunda. Mm -hmm. Joan is the other aspect of the lunar lat lattice and is revered differently by each Khajiiti subspecies. Now we get to Lorkaj, the moon beast. Lorkaj, you can already guess which one that is, is easily identifiable as the history of Lorcan and in Khajiiti culture, Credited with the creation of the mortal plane. Kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. Lorcaj holds different reverence for the Khajiit, some out of admiration and some out of complete contempt 
for his deceit and cunning. Totally get that. Lorcaj, man. Mob Lorcaj, yeah. all the gear that comes from Lorcaj, the style that you can get. Ugh. Dude, and the history of Lorcaj. Probably one of the biggest deities in Tamrielic culture. We should Lord do Cam. something on that. Just Lorcaj. We should look into that. How about the lore lesson on Lorcan that we did a while ago? Super stoked you're paying attention. Awesome. Thanks, Jibs. It was an honest effort. Anyway, Namira. <laughs> the Great Darkness is the Khajiiti name for Namira, who represents the darkness found within the heart of Lorcan, or Lorcaj, and the Great Void from which he was born. When a Khajiit dies, they not only are assisted by Kanarthi, but they entrust their soul to Namira. Mara. Mara is known to the Khajiit as the Mother Cat, the goddess of love. Aww. I know, it's so sweet. She is attributed to the passions of the Khajiit, though evidence of her actual worship amongst the race is unknown. Hmm. You know, where do they come up with this stuff? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't recall seeing anything with Mara and elsewhere. As far as any kind of worship, either. So not yet. Hmm. You'd probably have to go to a brothel to find worship from Mara. But this is the family show, <laughs> so we're not going to talk too much about Dan. This is PG, guy. I know. This is and, Disney. And Chris, your ship is up again. <laughs> mm, so many things I could do with Stop that. Talking. All right, cool. <laughs> this is my time. <laughs> All right, so the next uh, god is Mayrunes. Yeah, it's not too hard to figure out Mayrunes. Mayrunes is also known as Jakajit in in Kajiti speak. Anyway, the Kajiti version of the Daedric Prince Mayrunes Dagon. Super surprise. Mayrunes is known for his natural tendency to rend and destroy all things around him. I like him. Yeah, he's an SOB. He is depicted as an eternally young god in a cat form. I want to be depicted eternally young. That'll never happen. Way too much hair loss for that stuff. <laughs> you cannot come back. From this that. is my lord. Last time. Stop talking. Okay, my fault. All right. Now, my personal favorite. Because he's awesome. Really awesome. Rajin, known as the footpad and the silent walker. Rajin is a highly revered part of Kajiti Pantheon. Rajin is the thief god. Mm-hmm. And in life, he was the most infamous cat burglar in all of Elsewhere's history. The trickster cat, who in life originated from the Black Kirigo part of Sanchal, which we haven't had any part of yet, yet, was said to be so incredibly skilled as a thief, he was able to steal the tattoo from the neck of an empress as she slept. That sounds... Hard freaking core. Anyway, Regine is credited with using the Ring of Kajiti, which is an infamous artifact of the race that allowed for the most incredible acts of thievery ever known. When Regine died... He was adopted as a god among the Khajiit to serve an example of their cleverness and their ability as a Khajiiti race. Fun fact. Before attempting an unlawful act, many Khajiit 
ask for Rajin's blessing, which makes Rajin doubly awesome. I don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to be doing this, but I am about to commit murder and thievery, so Rajin, make sure that I'm good. I like it. Okay, couple more. Riddlethar is the sugar god or the god of the two moons dance and was brought to the Khajiiti people by the famous prophet Riddle... Oh my god. What? Riddharidatta. Riddharidatta. As a set of guidelines rather than an actual deity. So Riddlethar is something that they follow, not necessarily a person. The thought of Riddlethar was brought to the Khajiit by Riddharidatta, who is an actual person. Hmm. Therefore, to many Khajiit, Riddlethar is a sense of being. This is sounding very like yoga y. Meditation-y. Sense of being, right? Okay, I'll shut up. Riddlethar is still known to manifest as a humble messenger of the gods who manifests when people are in need of assistance. Hmm. So, he's kind of like the Red Cross. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. If you need a real-world real world reference. Anyway, the next one. I laugh at the name of this one, but it is what it is. Srendar. Srendar. Yeah, they mean Stendar. He is known as the Runt. Oh. Oh, my God. It took you so long to realize that. I never knew that. Now you know. The lore. It's rich. So Srendar is known as the Runt or the God of Mercy. Srendar has a close resemblance to the manifestations of Stendar. By other races of Tamriel, not much else is known about any actual worship of Srendar by the Kashit. Little fun fact about that: since both Srendar and Srendar are known, since Srendar and Stendar are known as the god of mercy by all races of Tamriel, and with no actual information on Stendar being a god revered by the Kashit, the close pronunciation between Srendar and Stendar may actually be nothing but a legitimate mispronunciation. Okay. Yeah. So, there's that. Very strange. Now, I'm not going to lie. This next one irritates the living crap out of me. (laughs) Honestly does. People will probably send me hate mail about this, but this one, it just irritates me. Okay. Shigorath. What's wrong with it? Irritates me. Because the the O is gone? No, because he's freaking annoying. Oh. As a character. Full on. Like the whole thing. I'm not a fan. Okay. Okay, so there's that. Anyway. Known as the Skuma Cat or the God of Madness, Shagorath. Notice the tone inflection. Shagorath is easily identifiable with the Daedric Prince Sheogorath. I did really well on that. I'm going to give myself a cough lap. Cough lap. All right, yep. Good job. Good job. Okay. Negative effects of skooma and moon sugar in Kajidi culture are attributed to the presence of this trickster douchebag god. Man, you really don't like him, I do, do not. You? I do not. 
pretty it, dead serious about that. Too. Okay, so some of the other Daedra are evil. Like, truly evil. This guy tricks people into some gnarly, sinister crap. And, and I'm getting, like, totally serious here for no reason, but I just, I don't you like... You worked up. I mean, I, your face is red, your nostrils are flaring. <laughs> I mean... Who I think does he's a that? Free, I think he's a total... Now you got veins popping out of your scalp. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like him. Some of the stuff he does is gnarly, so I don't even really feel bad for that. Let's talk about the lunar lattice. Okay. Hate mail is inbound. <laughs> There are so many people that love Shea Gorath just because he's like super wacky. Yeah, he's a dick. Anyway. Chat says blame the other princes. They made him know that. <laughs> okay. I do. There's a lot of them I don't like, but this guy? Yeah. He's just evil. Okay. The Lunar Lattice. As we have discussed in a previous lore lesson. Lore lesson 11, if you haven't seen it. Go take a look. The morphology of each Khajiit is determined on their date of birth and is directly attributed to the moon phases of Joan and Jode, which we've already identified as Master and Secunda, the two moons. These phases are referred to as the lunar lattice. So at birth, all Khajiit look very, very similar. But within a few weeks, their individual body shape begins to take place, and then once manifested, will remain for the duration of their lives. And I'm talking anything from an... From a house cat appearing alfique to a freaking centrot. A massive, giant, I skipped leg day beast. Don't forget the pomerots. Right. They're all there. So it all depends on the lunar lattice and what phase each moon is in. So let's talk a little bit about it. The Khajiit grow. This is a fun fact, by the way. The Khajiit grow at a much faster rate than a human and their average lifespan is around 100 years. 100 years. Hmm. Yeah, I don't want to live that I long. I didn't realize they're, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize they lived, to me, that's short. I'm talking Tamriel years. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess it's a high fantasy thing, but like my cats, I wish they lived 100 years. I'd love for my cats to outlive me. But like 15 years and I have to go through the pain and freaking misery of putting a cat down. I'd love your cats to outlive you. Man, they're like the douchebaggery in you, it has no bounds. <laughs> that was just mean and uncalled for. I'm a nice person. That was kitty cat mean right I'm there. I'm a nice person. I took it to 11. First Ox. Let's talk about First Ox. You have heard Zoss refer to First Ox. There are 17 different versions of Khajiit, and these variations are known as First Ox. Within Khajiiti society, although each one of these body types are quite different and distinct, they are all granted respect, regardless of their shape or size. I think modern society could take note from that. It doesn't matter who you are or what you look like, you are all respected equally. Okay, all done with that. Depending on the phases <laughs> of the moons... If the moons are waxing, waning, full, or new, in whatever combination of those four of each of the moons, various morphologies will manifest. For example, if Masser is waxing and Secunda is waning, a Toje Rot will be born. If Masser is full and Secunda is full, a Sench is born. I will not go through every single type, 
because you'll shoot me in the face by the time we're done. There's a ton. <laughs> There's a lot oh, of combinations. Oh, yeah. So anyway, the different types of Khajiit, depending on how these morphologies manifest, are as follows. There's ohms. Similar in many ways to the Bosmer. Yes. Similar in many ways to the Bosmer, which means they don't look like Khajiit. Mm-hmm. Many ohms will tattoo their faces to resemble a cat, so they're not mistaken for a Bosmer. And the ohms rot. Whenever I get to a morphology called something rot, it means this race is the same as the original, as the prefix, but it's much larger and more ferocious. That's a huge... That's a huge... thing! Cat! What it means. So anyway. Prefix dash rot means the larger, more ferocious form. So anyway, ohms rot. Similar to the race of men, short tails, like colored full. This type of Khajiit walk on their heels, unlike many other subspecies. Now we get into the more kitty, 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 kitties. Suthe rot. Similar in height and build to man, one of the most common Khajiiti breeds. Their colors are dark brown, orange, light yellow. They may have spots or stripes. The Suthe, the smaller version of the Suthe rot. Then there's Cathay, similar to the Suthe rot in appearance, stronger and larger, however. Then there's the Cathay rot, larger and stronger than the Cathay, and they're known as Jaguar men. There's the Tojay, not the Tojam, the Tojay. Little is known about this breed, except they live in the southern marshes and jungles of elsewhere. Then there's the Toje Rot, larger version. My very 150,000% favorite, the Alphique. Oh, yeah. I have one sitting in my lap right now. Very similar to a house cat, the Alphique are quadrupedal, but the keen and um, quite adept intelligence of the Khajiit allow them to understand the spoken word. And possibly cast spells. I love them so bad. Then the Alphique Rot. Nothing really known about the subspecies. Man, I'd love to see that. Other than they're larger. So the way I look at it is a regular house cat and like a lynx. Or a savannah cat. Okay. In the real world. If that means it makes any sense. And they can freaking cast spells. And understand what you're saying. Yeah. And quite possibly respond. (laughs) So... (laughs) I don't know if I want that. I like my cats unable to yell. Docile. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, there's the doggy and the doggy rot. Uh, commonly less common, less form a less common form because words are hard. Doggy live in the trees of the Tenmar forest. We mentioned a battle between the Khajiit. That's my Khajiits. That's my Khajiit. Yeah. Um, we mentioned a battle between the Khajiit and the Bosmer in the past where the Bosmer were lured into the forest by the Khajiit and then attacked and obliterated. These were Dirty. the doggy rot. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Then there's the Palmar similar in appearance and size of a common tiger. The Palmar rot are similar to the appearance of Palmar, but of course, larger and more fierce. The Sench, very large bipedal Khajiit. 
The scents are approximately the height of an average Altmer, which is pretty freaking tall. Think Shaq. However, 20 times their weight. They have thick forelimbs, and that's T-H-I-C-K, not T-H-I-C-C. Forelimbs and are even more thick than, than rear limbs, giving them a muscular appearance much like that of an ape. So fat shack on roids. Fat shack on roids that did not skip leg day. Their coats are ribbon <laughs> with striped in a dark crimson. Crimson. Oh boy. Crimson. Whiskey is whiskey is essential and it helps. Um, yeah, crimson color. Then there's the cinch rot, larger and slower than the cinch. Definitely my mount. <laughs> slower. With the shorter <laughs> body and straighter legs. The average Centrot stands as tall as two Altmer and can weigh as much as 50 Altmer. That is a massive freaking cat. Like the Cinch, Centrot are employed as steeds, often in battle, where they earn the title Battle Cats from the Imperial Troopers. Now, there is a lore book in ESO, in Elsewhere, where there is a Centrot that is pleading for the rest of society to understand that they are just like everybody else and intelligent as well. They're not just battle cats. Man, I love the Centrot. Yeah. I love them. Yes, they're awesome. I love them so bad. I love a mountain too because I spent a crap load of crowns making him fast. So, Did you max him out already? No, he's like 40. I think he's at 42. 42? Yeah. He can run fast. They look better when they when you have the the higher speed. There was someone talking about that in guild chat the other day. They feel like when you first get the Centrot, if you ordered pre-order the collector's edition, you get that mount. It feels like he wants to run fast, but it's just super slow motion. But like he looks real like jacked up when he's running. But the faster you get him going, it's a uh, looks a lot better. It looks yeah, the animation looks way better. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the main. You will encounter this in elsewhere. It's just part of their culture. The Mane is a very unique breed of Khajiit. Manes are only born under a very rare alignment of Masser and Secunda. This alignment occurs when Masser and Secunda are completely covering each other, which is basically an eclipse in our world. During this alignment, according to legend, a third moon appears. It just kind of looks like that, but the two moons are together. Khajiit are... That's smart. Okay. <laughs> no, All, wait to see what you'd say. Only one main can be alive at any one time, and it's believed that the same main is reborn again and again into different bodies. That's just lore of the main. More than one main has never contended for power at any one time. This may be due to the truth in the traditional Khajiiti belief, or that one main destroys all of its potential rivals. Hmm. Yeah. You're going to like this part. Got a little story to tell about this part. I'll get there. The language of the Khajiit. The Khajiiti language is known as Ta'agra. The actual word Khajiit is formed of the Ta'agra words for Kaj and Eat, which literally means one who deserts. Now, this does not mean one who leaves or abandons. This is a literal meaning of desert, in this case, desert. 
a dry, barren area of land, especially one covered with sand that is character characteristically desolate, waterless, and without vegetation. So it means one who deserts. Here's some useful Taagra words. I'll get to the story, don't worry. Ja in Taagra means coins, which of course is an integral part of Khajiiti culture. Mm -hmm. Jakaje is the lunar lattice. Jemath is moon sugar. And, and, then, and then there's Jekosit, a Khajiiti insult. Sometimes thought to mean jackass. <sighs> so, so uh, you gotta, gotta tell them what you wrote into your yeah, little storyline. I'm at the absolutely end. going to, and nobody ever caught it, which blows my freaking mind apart. Anyway, in uh, our very first storyline, if you've mm -hmm. listened to it, hmm. you may remember that we had a certain character played by one of our good friends, Nara Nara. And her character was a Khajiit that we met, and she referred to she referred to Jibs as Jekosit every single time she talked to him. He never figured it out. He never looked it up. But basically, Jekosit means jackass, and he never figured it out until recently, which. I thought was hilarious. So anyway, have, with <laughs> you have uncontrollable bowels tomorrow. Oh my god, dude! That's my little joke. Anyway, uh, so what's right here? What's the deal with moon sugar? Let's talk about it a little bit. Moon sugar is the holiest of substances known to the Khajiit, and they understand moon sugar literally to be crystallized moonlight that was caught in the water of the Topal Sea and delivered to the sugarcane groves by the tides. It's freaking heroin, people. <laughs> <laughs> the substance can drive Khajiit into fits, of, into fits of ecstasy and abandon and put them into shivering sugar fits. Yeah. Hmm. Moon sugar is considered a drug and is illegal in all of Tamriel and often smuggled for profit. Now, a fun fact about moon sugar is that it can be refined into a more potent and addictive form known as skooma mm. or Tamriel's equivalent of heroin. It's not so bad. So much. Did you see it? All bug-eyed. <laughs> I know. It's terrible. Don't do it. Anyway. Moon sugar is also used as a seasoning, which I freaking love. Like people sprinkle heroin into their food. And an alchemical <laughs> ingredient, it has an analgesic and sopor uh, uh, sopor soporific hmm? effects. What? I did not look up soporific. Do it yourself. Making its users both happy and stupid. Kind of like your two podcast hosts at the moment. Khajiit commonly have a very strong sweet tooth. And moon sugar is used as a spice in almost every single dish found in elsewhere. I thought that was funny. I didn't realize they were that into it. I mean, I knew they were into it, like, pretty heavy, but I didn't realize they sprinkled it on their food and all that. Like, yeah. that's, uh... Hmm. Yeah, it's criminal. But whatever. Hey, whatever you're gonna we do. Should, we should get into smuggling that. That's a trap! We should... No matter how you felt about the Khajiit, 
in the past. I know there's some haters out there. You cannot help but play elsewhere and fall in love with the Khajiit. There's like no way. They're freaking awesome. They're not like Argonians. They're super easy to hate. I mean, they poop all over the place. And they walk in it. <laughs> anyway, the Khajiit oh. are like extremely fun-loving. They're, jovi they're jovial. They have like a super positive outlook on life no matter what. Which is something that we can all replicate in our world. That's all I'm going to say about that. But they're yeah. funny. They're nonsensical. Some of the things they say, their love and passion for each other. Yep. It's incredible. So, and look, I know this is a game, right? I get it. But just freaking love them. They are so funny and fun. And now I play a crap load of them. And I love them as much as I love the Bosmer over this past probably six months i'm like dude kajita rad so anyway that's where we're I at i agree uh, yeah and elsewhere did an excellent job like cash said earlier in the show embodying and representing the kajit in their best and truest form not only the you know how the, they've been treated previously but how they choose to treat other races you really see that in the game and I sure hope you all took your uh, sickness medication today in the form of your orange juice or your handful of spinach, whatever it is you do. I ate spinach today. It was good. Good. Because you need immunity for this one. We're all going to get sick. Lore lesson number 59. We're going to talk about the plagues of Tamriel. And this was suggested slash requested by Never Separate. He's one of our outstanding officers, guild leaders in the Lore Seekers Guild. Thank you very much for this one. Um, I did not know that there were so many freaking damn illnesses in <laughs> Tamriel. It's like a million ways to die, the movie. Mm -hmm. Dude, you are like not kidding. So we are going to cover the bigger ones and then touch on some of the smaller ones in this lore lesson about the okay. plagues. So in our modern world, illness is still the bane since man basically first arrived on Earth. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, as the flu season winds down here, we are celebrating getting rid of the sniffles mm -hmm. by detailing some of the most famous ailments in all of Tamriel and some of which have wreaked havoc in Tamriel throughout its history. So grab a box of tissues, Jibs, and put on your okay. little footy pajamas. Okay. Stay warm. Okay. Because we're going to talk deal. about those who may have had it worse than you and I during your last battle with the Suds. Okay. We're going to start with the big one. One that is very, very detailed in Elsewhere. And this one is called the Nahatan Flu. Oh, yeah. One of the deadliest diseases to hit the face of Tamriel was known as the Nahatan Flu, also known as the Nahatan Plague. This devastating illness hit the populace in the second era, year 560, which is very close to our time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and lasted for 43 freaking years until the second era Whoa. 
year 603, which is when it no started I- to go away. I had no idea that lasted that long. Mm-hmm. It's like the wow. gift they kept on giving. That's a lot of death. That's a lot of death. And there's a crap load of airborne. Just saying. Uh, yeah. Right. At its height, the Manhattan flu had nearly spread to every single corner of Tamriel, killing a massive portion of the Tamrielic population. The flu wiped out entire families and caused mass paranoia across the land. Among those the very most affected, the most susceptible, was the Khajiit. Oh, yeah. Especially uh, devastated was the city of Sanchal in southern elsewhere. Palatine. They were Mm -hmm. very, very susceptible to the effects of the Manhattan flu. So the first fun fact. In Valenwood... The Manhattan flu killed nearly all worshippers of Zen, the Bosmeri god of toil. He's also the god of agriculture and payment in kind. But what this led to was the Bosmer culture abandoning all worship of Zen, the deity, soon afterwards. They're like, this dude's weak sauce. (laughs) (laughs) They wiped out all of his followers. We're done. Guy is not legit. Throwing up the twos. Right. So there's no definitive answer as to how the Manhattan flu was introduced to Tamriel, although there are two very well-known theories. The first theory being that the illness was attributed to an Argonian shaman who was really pissed off about the way (laughs) the Argonian race was treated by the other races of Tamriel. He's like, oh, this... Now I get you all sick. I sneeze on your tacos. Achoo. Just like that. Just like that. It was said that he created and unleashed the disease through a manipulation of their cherished spore trees, also known as the history. Mm-hmm. A second theory is that the Manhattan flu was born of more natural causes. However, the people of Tamriel needed someone to blame for such a travesty. So they chose the Argonians. Poor Argonians. Yeah, poor Argonians, my butt. They're too busy walking in poop in Merkmire. Let's throw this on them. Well, move upland. That's all I'm going to say. That's true. So because the Argonians had a natural immunity to the flu, hmm, super weird. The Argonian shaman theory holds the most weight with the Tamrielic populace. They're like, you didn't get sick? It must be you. Anyway, there are no accurate accounts as to how many Tamrielans, Tamrielans lost their lives due to the Manhattan flu, but its devastating effects were still immeasurable. The disease killed nearly the entire non-Argonian population of Black Marsh and scarred outside or scarred, scared outsiders away for centuries. Even Tiber Septim himself, this was much later, obviously, than ESO's timeline. Even right. Tiber Septim himself was hesitant to invade Black Marsh due to his fears of bringing the Manhattan flu back home. <laughs> anyway, fun fact. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I should have probably went, but I didn't. So there's that. It's all good. 
<laughs> After the rapid spread and the wide swath of destruction caused by the Manhattan flu, the only race brave enough to stick around in Black Marsh were the craziest hell Dunmer, particularly the Dunmer slavers. I know this is your race, dude. That's why I'm kicking him in the nuts. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's my, that's my fam. The Dunmer slavers of House Drez who depended upon Argonian slaves to power their workforce. The only uh, the only myrrh to not be scared out of Black Marsh because of money. You know what? Yeah. That's, those, that's my peeps right there. We hold our own. Oh, my God. So We're like, cool. hey, hey, you know what? There's money to be made. And we got some scales here that made this flu, so we're going to make use of them. At the absolute downfall of an entire race. Solid I'm saying, work. Saw an opportunity, and I seized it. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you self a seal. Because you're poor decision-making. <laughs> I'm going to get my arms cut off. I'm going to become a dwimmer. Oh, my God. Yeah, Herbert the pervert, the, the dunmer. <laughs> Call myself a seal. I got some dwimmer in the basement. Sweet go- Jesus. Why don't we go down there and get them? <laughs> I got lots of popsicles down the basement. <laughs> I got some Dwemer gears. Okay, carry on. So once the Manhattan flu struck Black Marsh, Cyrodiil lost its hopes of total control over most of the province. So they're like, F that, we're out. Those people Deuces. down there are sick. Something needs to be done. <laughs> <laughs> Them folks are done. The guys. plague uh, is thought to be one of the main reasons for the Three Banners War. That might sound familiar if you play Elder Scrolls Online. The royal family of Wayrest, the entire royal family, succumbed to the clutches of the Manhattan flu, which placed newly crowned King Emmerich in a position to form the Daggerfall Covenant. Hmm. It continues. The Manhattan flu being especially devastating to the Khajiit of elsewhere motivated them to join the Aldmeri Dominion out of nothing but gratitude for the Altmer, who rendered major assistance to the Khajiit population during the worst periods of the plague. Tell me the Altmer did not plan that. They're like, hmm. Sucks that your people are dying, but we see an opportunity <laughs> to do a little business. All I'm saying is that sounds like an Altmer. It does sound like an Altmer. And I have no doubt, even though I love Queen Aran, and I just I just can't disparage her. She's smart. They are smart. They're like, man, the cats. Let's bring them on. They're fierce. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Bring them on. Just like that. So, and then as a third, the illness also allowed the Argonians an independent voice throughout the land. Now, remember, the Manhattan flu killed everything in Black Marsh except for the Argonians and some super greedy Dunmer. So, anyway, the Argonians freed from slavery for the most part, except for House Drez. They sought an independent voice. And because of the flu, they're like, damn, that flu kind of done us some good. We have an independent voice. So it allowed them to join the Ebonheart Pact as equals instead of as slaves alongside the Dark Elves. Uh Here's a little fun fact. A native human 
humanoid type silver-skinned race that lived in Black Marsh by the name of the Cothringi were thought to have been 100% eradicated by the Manhattan flu. Wow. Yeah. That well, sucks. wouldn't it be something if, you know, like they made something of that in ESO? You know, like that they come back or something, you know, just random thought. But, you know, just to see these races you thought were long gone, like the Imga. I mean, come on, who wanted one of that, right? You want to have an emote? Yeah, the Imga, I think, was. I love you, Zoss. I think it was laziness on the Imga. Because if they were in the lore, it was like, damn it, that's a whole other body render we have to do. Let's just say they bailed. <laughs> they saw the Three Banners War coming and they're like, F this. Actually, it's more like, F this. You guys are stupid. We're leaving. We're going back to New York City. Anyway, we've already talked about the Imga. We don't. Wouldn't that be one heck they of They left, a... basically, when the Three Banners War started. In... The next chapter, Return of the Imga. Wouldn't that be a cash kick in the nuts? Like, <laughs> we ain't lazy, bitch. <laughs> you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know me, Imga. You don't even know me. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so, okay. So that's the Cuthringy. But one of the most touching stories of the time of the Manhattan flu was that of the Crimson Ship. Many Cothringi refugees, when they were trying to avoid their own death, they left Black Marsh to avoid the effects of the Manhattan flu, but they were turned away at every single port at which they attempted to land on this ship, the Crimson Ship. They sailed the seas, and at the very last port they attempted refuge, which was Hammerfell, they were again turned away. Nice job, Redguard. So what ended up happening was their ship drifted at sea and was finally found by a group of pirates. Not a single crew member was alive. They were all dead. Wow. So for this reason, on the 20th of Rain's Hand, the people of Hammerfell honor the Crimson Ship, the one they turned away on what they call the Day of Shame, which at least they're amicable about it, right? So no Red Guard will leave their home for it is said that the Crimson Ship will return on the 20th of Rain's Hand. Wow, that's gnarly. It's freaking sad, dude. It is. These people oh are trying, they're trying to flee yeah. because there's there's an epidemic going on in their homeland and the Red Guard are like, uh-uh, not today. So they all died, you know, so. That's crazy. Freaking sad. So reminiscent. I didn't know that was a thing. It's just so reminiscent I mean, you're of a modern world. Yeah, you're tearing up and right. Where's my dumber at? We need to capitalize on this. Your dumber, yeah, like your dumber is going to make a difference. <laughs> Freaking douchebag. How can we make some money? All right, let's move on. There's a there's so many illnesses. All right, <laughs> I'll the, let you finish. The Thracian plague also coined the slug famine, and this one. Raises my freaking blood pressure. If you've listened to our show for a while, you'll know why. Because the cause of this really freaking pisses me off. (laughs) Thracian (laughs) Plague was created artificially by the Slowed, the Slug Race, and their Coral Kingdom of Thross, which is the 100% most cash 
hated race on all of Tamriel. They're just gross. They're I mean, they're hug. You're covering a sludge. Right. So the reasons for the Slode developing this plague are largely unknown, other than the fact that the Slode absolutely hate every other single race on Tamriel for no freaking reason, which makes them triply terrible. Yeah. But the massive pandemic was unleashed upon the mainland of Tamriel in the first era, year 2260, and wiped out, pay attention here, my friends, the Thracian plague launched by the Slode wiped out one half of the population in all of Tamriel. Wow. One half. That's yeah. uh, some serious population control. It is, but they got theirs. They went full Thanos there. They got. They did go full Thanos, and they got theirs, and I'll get there. The plague washed up. The plague first washed up on the shores of Tamriel and quickly spread across all of the mainland, killing nearly everything in its path. Fun fact. It is said that the Archmage Cirebane, the Aldmeri god ancestor saved thousands from perishing from the disease with the use of his powerful ring. The Warlock's Ring is what it was called. He is even credited, Sirabane is credited with possibly finding a cure for the Thracian Plague. Hmm. So it is really unknown, it's largely unknown, when exactly the Thracian Plague subsided, although cases of the disease were still being reported as far as Wayrest over 400 years after it landed on the shores of Tamriel. Sounds like the measles in our modern world. Yeah. So with its origins being traced to the slowed slug race on Thross... The Thracian Plague is the reason for the formation of the All Flags Navy, which we've covered before. But it's really fun to talk about this. <laughs> the, the All Flags Navy was a massive fleet of ships and sailors from the Red Guard, the Breton, the Colovians, the Elven, and Argonian races. They were all like, okay, enough is enough. These races, many of whom were at odds put aside their differences and planned an invasion of the Coral Kingdom of Thross with the goal of complete eradication of the Slode. Wow. Right. So, fun fact. Sometime around the year, the first era, year 2260, the All Flags Navy sailed to Thross and killed every single freaking dirty Slode they could find then used various forms of magic to completely sink the Coral Kingdom into the sea. Although, Thross would rise again in time. However, it seemed they learned their lesson because the Slode would never again attempt an attack on Tamriel. Ever. They're like, uh, okay. These guys are kind of badasses. That's insane, man. So... We're not going to mess with them anymore. Okay. The Khajiit, particularly devastated by the Thracian plague and the heavy loss of life in the Khajiiti population, caused incredible instability in the in Khajiiti society. And we covered this a little bit earlier. 
So due to the massive loss of life, the 16 peaceful and coexisting states that encompassed elsewhere were reduced to two culturally divided states, mm. Pelotine and Inequina. So the reason they became so culturally divided after working in symbiosis for so many, so many, so many years is because the massive devastation and the killing, the basic eradication by the Thracian plague of so many of their most prominent leaders caused chaos. And it caused a bunch of people who did not want to be in power to be thrust into a position of leadership. Right. And they were so split that the two provinces that remained of Inequina and Pelotine, they were at odds. Right. So that is what we're seeing right now in elsewhere as we know it, which is why in our predictions for what's going to happen in the rest of the season of the dragon is that Southern elsewhere will be opened up. Oh yeah. And backpacks will be available to our characters. Backpack, backpack. Just a little side note. That's my own personal opinion. Man, wouldn't that be cool? Zoss, would that be cool, huh? For players? Huh? Huh? I know. They're probably like, look, you dickheads already got the necros. You dickheads <laughs> already got the frick. You, you already got, got freaking Sphinx cats. Cat. What else you want? Just shut your mouths. Just be happy. Okay. We're totally happy. We swear. Yeah. Backpacks later. Somebody yeah, else's idea. We don't idea need to talk about it anymore. We'll, we'll just we'll leave it alone. How full of ourselves are we that we think all these ideas are are ours? Oh gosh, far <laughs> from it. They've been thinking of them for years. Far from it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, anyway, if you want to talk about the two biggest plagues of elsewhere, those two are it. Absolutely, hundred percent. Manhattan flu, Thracian plague. Those two devastated Tamriel in their own ways. But let's talk about a few of the other ones. Now, trust me. When you talk about some of the other notable diseases and ailments in Tamriel, there is a crap ton. If you want to see them, go to loreseekerspodcast.com and go to this particular lore lesson. It's a lot of reading because there's a ton. But we're going to talk about some of the ones that, that piqued my interest and kind of, some of them made me laugh, but other ones that I thought were notable. First one is the Ashwell Blight. This is an acute blight disease affecting the victim's will and thought processes. It may be contra contracted from corpus beasts or other blighted creatures. The next one is the black hearts blight. This is an acute blight disease affecting the victim's strength and endurance. It may be contracted from corpus beasts or other blight monsters. The disease also has spread to zombies, allowing it to live on despite the end of the blight in the third era, year 427. The next one is one you might already know about because it's present in our modern world, but it may be a little bit different effects in Tamriel, cholera. Cholera is one of the deadliest diseases in Tamriel and is always fatal unless a cure is provided very quickly. The next one made me chuckle. It's called the Collywobbles. What? The Collywobbles. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a lollipop. Like that sounds, sounds like somewhere here in, in uh, England. That sounds really tasty, actually. And then wobble. all of a sudden, you have a disease affecting your strength, affecting your endurance and your mobility. 
Symptoms include uncontrollable shaking and chronic weariness. Sounds like me after my morning coffee. It may be contracted from shulk or zombies. Okay. The next one was very interesting. This one's called the Crimson Plague. Crimson Plague is a dangerous common disease disease which spreads easily and acts quickly. Symptoms include weakness and headaches. Infection can result in muteness, which I could totally benefit from with you. Anyway, the disease once widespread across Tamriel was oh, yeah. thought to have been stamped out during the second area era. Area? Third era, year 427. You're very good. The tomb of Gedna Relvel in the ruins of Old Mornhold was unsealed. Relvel, once a powerful sorceress condemned for studying and practicing forbidden magic, had cheated death and become a lich. She then attempted to spread the Crimson Plague throughout the city of Mornhold by infecting rats with the disease. Uh, rats! The lich was destroyed by the Nerevarine before the disease could spread to more than a few people. Dirty. Oh, Nerevarine. Yes. The next one I chuckled at, it was called Hell Joint. This is a mild, common disease affecting a victim's mobility and dexterity. Symptoms include persistent irritation and inflammation of your joints. Sounds like you need some glucosamine. Glucosamine. (laughs) What? Whiskey. (laughs) It may be contracted from wolves, cliff racers, and zombies. And here's another one, Madness. Madness is any illness of the mind that limits rational thought. It can be brought about by any number of factors. I'm sure you're pretty familiar with one of them. The souls of madmen are the property of... Sheogorath. Sheogorath. The daydream prince of madness and stupid puns. And that's annoyance. And annoyance. I know. And jeez! Yes. And stinky forks. That too. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, there's the pyrophoric hemophilia, which is vampire's disease. Here's one that made me laugh and made me immediately think of my good friend, Jibs. Serpiginous dementia. This is a serious common disease affecting the victim's mind and behavior. Symptoms include hallucinations and itchy and unsightly scaly skin condition resembling snake scales. Hmm. It may be contracted from netch and zombies. And how exactly did I remind you of this? Dementia. The fact that you forget things Dementia. and you have an, uh, a uh, contractible skin disease. Oh. Well, that's news he- to me. <laughs> he doesn't. Well, this next one reminds me of you. I'm going to read it. Oh. I'm taking over the lore lesson. Tickle Bridge. Symptoms of Tickle Bridge include a loss of endurance and attractiveness. <gasps> Contracted from handling dirty equipment. <laughs> Contracted from oh, handling dirty equipment. That's what you call a nut shot. That contracted from oh. handling dirty equipment leaves it so wide open. Like, like what equipment are you touching? What kind of equipment <laughs> are you talking about? I mean, take a I shower. Just, I yeah you know you need to bleach your lady parts yes apparently <laughs> oh my gosh anyway good stuff man yeah 
Now that is the end. I, I'm telling you, my friends, we could have gone with Tamrielic diseases for at least another 30 minutes. There's a ton. Not going to do that to you. These are the large jeeps. General, I've had diarrhea since Easter. Okay, so, um, you know, since the launch of Elder Scrolls Online, the cinematic trailers have been insane and have featured some very iconic ESO characters. Perhaps the most notable are the three characters that we saw at the very inset of these cinematic trailers. The Evanheart hero. He's a Nord, obviously. Possibly a Stamina Dragonite. But it appears to me and a lot of other people in the Twitterverse. Then there's the Aldmeri hero, a high elven magic sorcerer. You really can't debate that one. Nope. Yeah. She's a high elf sorcerer. She's awesome. She's so cool. She is awesome. And then there's... One that's a little more shrouded in mystery. Mm -hmm. And that is the Breton hero. Now, he first manifests as a stamina nightblade. But we're going to talk about whether or not he actually was that, or did he morph into something else? I don't know. Did he decide? Did, did one of his skills get nerfed and he decided to respec? Did he do a class token change? <laughs> he may have. There's no doubt that the creation and the display of these warriors from the three warring factions of ESO are stand-ins for our own player characters. Like, they are put in place to represent us as the player. Correct. Their individual skills and combat prowess are very, very well represented in the trailers, and they are certainly sparking a lot of chatter, especially the Breton. Uh, but there's just not that much information detailing their origin stories. So this will be a short lore lesson, more on speculation and actually the things that we have seen of the Breton. But his re uh, recurrence in the cinematic trailers for Elsewhere kind of sparked my interest at making a little bit of a dive into what the dude is all about. Hmm. Okay. Whoa. I didn't realize there were... So is there, like, conspiracy theories about this guy? Not necessarily conspiracy theories, but just a lot of talk about, like, what his actual class is and how the hell he could have survived some of the stuff he went through. So we'll talk about okay. that a little bit, but... Gotcha. So he... The Breton hero, he's the hooded dude, and um, his armor was once available in ESO. I bought it. He's very convincingly displayed as a stamina-based Nightblade in the earliest trailers. He's playing arrows, he's dual wielding, he's doing all his jumpy-jumpy stuff, and I'm like, man, he's a Breton? Like, okay. So, most of those trailers were all in Cyrodiil. Like, the very first ones were, were all detailing the war in Cyrodiil. Yeah. But during the conflict between the three heroes, the Daedric incursion takes place. So all three of these heroes that they're kind of focusing on, or they're all leaders of their own faction, or leaders within their own faction, they see what's happening. And they know that, okay, we're fighting each other here, but now there's these Daedra here, and if we don't do something, then we're all going to die. 
So they reluctantly joined forces temporarily to thwart the Daedric advance. And this is where the Breton, in one of these videos, takes a sword to the chest by a Daedric lord. And that's when everybody kind of went like, what? So then in a later cinematic, the Breton hero is revealed as he kind of comes up this little hill on a zombie horse. His face is all jacked up with an undead army at his back. So it's yeah. like the de- the first Daedric incursion is over. Everybody kind of goes their own way. They, you know, they regroup. And then here comes the Breton hero on his way back on a zombie horse with an undead army. And they, the like the cinematic shows them advancing on Imperial City in Cerdum. Right. So one may speculate that the Breton was resurrected at some point, or the wound he took from the Daedra wasn't fatal, but I don't know. I kind of know injuries a little bit in my line of work. And a sword slash penetrating wound to the chest is normally not good. <laughs> so this guy may have something else going on to the under the hood that we don't really know about. So either he was resurrected, he survived the blow, or he himself was already among the undead. You know, with what we thought was his previous death in a previous previous trailer. Mm-hmm. And perhaps in the previous trailers, you know, when his skin looked good, he probably just wasn't revealing his immortal status. Is my thought. Okay. Okay. So from that point, in every other cinematic trailer, beyond the point of that particular trailer, which was entitled The Arrival, the Breton hero appears undead. His skin is decayed, all jacked up. It's sloughing off his face. His eyes have that crimson blue. I tell you, I'm going to say excuse me because I just burped. You don't even have to edit that out. Excuse me. I'm just going anyway. to let you finish <laughs> There's, I totally paused. There's no way around that. I totally burped. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so at that point, the Bre- he, he actually appears undead in all those subsequent trailers. And his skin sloughing off his face. His eyes are that super, super crimson blue. The same one that all the undead have. If you watch Game of Thrones, you know which one I'm talking about. Yeah. So he's got this undead army in tow. And there's absolutely no doubt that this aggressor we used to think was a Nightblade has made a full transformation to an undead, possibly stamina-based necromancer. Yeah, so this kind of comes out a little bit like when we talk about the latest trailer, but we're not there yet. So when he, he comes over in the same exact trailer, he comes over the hill, he's got this undead behind him, you're like, okay, this dude is definitely undead. He was fully after revenge because the opening battle scene is one of the coolest freaking battle scenes that I have seen between two people in any trailer ever. And it's a brutal fight between him and the Ebonheart hero, the Nord. Oh man, that was a fight for the ages, it, Yes, if you have not seen this, do yourself a favor and go Google the Arrival um, ESO That's trailer so cinematic slash don't miss it. It's freaking amazing. I want him so bad. Yeah, so like I'm watching this just going, why do I not have a Nord tank? I'm such right? an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> this guy is just such a badass. Oh, yeah, man. 
So um, there's a super brutal fight between uh, the Nord hero and the Breton hero, and um, the Breton hero does not seem to have like any emotion at all. Like he's super um, dexterous, and he's jumping around doing his thing. He's landing blows. He gets quite a few shots in on the Nord Dragon Knight. Before what appears to be a fatal blow by the Nord into the chest, torso, abdomen area of the Breton, right up against the pillar. And the Breton's just like, whatever. At this point, the look at his face is just like, I don't even care. I don't like you. I think he wanted death. There you go. I like that. So he impales the Breton with the business end of his battle axe. And then the Breton really just didn't even like, he didn't really give a crap. And then like Jib said, like maybe he had no fear of death. Maybe he was seeking his own death. So the Breton appears to be on his last leg and he's, he's just kind of sitting there and he's like taking his last few breaths and he's got these black vapors of death coming out of his body. And that's kind of when I was like, okay, definitely necromantic in some respect. Yeah. So at that exact point, the high, uh, the high elven sorceress appears. The the high elven old Mary hero appears. And then this is where the speculation comes in because it's not quite exactly clear what she does to him. Correct. But it appears that she cleanses him somehow or heals him somehow because you can see his skin color change from decayed to normal. I mean, he's still pale, but you know, the decay kind of goes away and then you can, you can see if you're looking at that wound that she gave him on his neck, you can see it disappears. And then he's kind of like, holy crap, lived to fight another day. And then she walks off into the sunset and she leaves him there by himself. So from that point, that's it. You don't see anything else from the Breton hero until the very latest trailers for Elsewhere emerge. You don't see anything through um, Morrowind or Somerset of the Breton hero. So he first appears at the very end of the Elsewhere announcement trailer. And he's inside a secured guard, guarded cart. And the cart is guarded by several Argonians. And the landscape is pretty darn clear that you're in Elsewhere. And then a dragon flies overhead. So now it's even more clear that you're in Elsewhere. And then the Breton is seen with his scarred face and like a really wry smile. And that's all you see of him. So like, okay, where the hell has this guy been? Why is he in chains? But for me, I'm thinking about, I'm like, okay, well, speculation would maybe lead me to believe that he was in prison because of his affinity for necromancy, which I think is a very solid thought. Jibs? Yeah, especially, you know, lore-based, depending on where he's coming from, you know? I mean, if he's coming from a high elf area, guess what? They hate necromancy. Most of Sir- most of uh, Tamriel in general, um, there's a lot that embrace necromancy on a general populace with merchants and whatnot, but... Um, when it comes to, you know, uh, elsewhere, they give two craps about necromancy. So, yeah. or, you know, I think it's interesting they're bringing him here. Yeah, or perhaps because he was being transported by Argonians, perhaps he did something in Shadowfen 
in the Black Marsh. Yeah. And they captured him and were like, uh, uh-uh, we're returning you to where you're wanted. Could be, yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, there's... God, they can take that story in so many different directions. So, um, his return remained kind of in the dark during the release of Elsewhere. Even though he was in the trailer, you're like, he never... Oh, God, spoiler. Never really shows up. You're like, where the hell is this guy... You know, where does he come in? But with the reveal of the last trailer of the season of Dra- season of the Dragon at E3, the Breton hero is back. Mm-hmm. So you'll see Abner. You already saw it earlier uh, in the show, or if you haven't seen it, go watch it. But Abner Tharn and then Chimera descend upon Rimmon in flames, and the Breton is seen crawling from the wreckage of possibly the same prisoner's cart. I would assume so. I'd assume it's the same. So um, he even lends a hand in the battle with the massive dragon. Now, but this time it's not Nightblade skills. Like, not at all. So unmistakable necromancer skills, including Bone Colossus, he's using. I mean, that was like the high, one of the highlights. The hiss is the highlight. But it was one of the highlights of that whole video was the Bone Colossus morph that he used. And then he got smacked into a pillar and all that stuff. So, as much as I scoured, there's not any lore on this guy. It's just spec. It's all speculation about, you know, who he is, who this mysterious character is, and what his origins were. So, he's super interesting, and, like, I'm dying to know what he has to do with this, and I really hope that in Pelotine we get to figure out what the deal is, but there's nothing out You know there. what we need? Friends, we are talking Pelotine uh, Southern Elsewhere today because it's confirmed. Our thoughts were confirmed. I think it was pretty dang obvious that in the next part of the season of the Dragon, we're going down south. So we're going to talk a little bit about Pelotine today. Let's get into it. In the second, uh, second era, year 309, the state of Pelotine was formed in the southern regions of Elsewhere. Coupled with the northern region of Anequina, the two kingdoms make up the whole of Elsewhere, home of the very iconic Khajiiti race. That is no news to anybody. During the First Era, Elsewhere was comprised of 16 independent zones that worked in harmony to maintain security and a healthy economy in the region. If you've heard our former lore lessons, we have talked about these 16 regions. However, Pelotine with access to the waterway, waterways feeding the Topal Sea, served as a trading hub, a trading hub receiving goods and services from the imperial city of Cyrodiil. The coastal cities of Torval and Sinchal were among the busiest ports of trade, and both worked very well with other independent realms in providing goods. Problem happened in the first era year 2260 the slowed of Thross released a devastating plague upon the mainland of Tamriel the first of two total douches the engineered illness which was called the Thracian plague slowed from Thross Thracian plague caused death and destruction across the whole of elsewhere this was the first time this was going to happen to these poor cats the entire 
Entire families were killed by the Thracian plague, including many sitting in very high-ranking positions. The plague impacted the region so much that some influential Khajiit were thrust into power where they never sought it in the first place, and that caused a lot of problems. The 16 independent realms of elsewhere were reduced to just two, Anequina and Pelatine. And these two kingdoms would be locked in a stalemate of conflict for centuries. Reason being, the two kingdoms of Anequina and Pelatine were very, very different. While the northern lands of Anequina developed into a strong warrior culture, Pelatine revolved around its wealth. The lush lands of the Tenmar Forest in the southern regions fed a very rich moon sugar trade that allowed for a steady income for southern leaders. So for this reason alone, they chose to hire mercenaries to protect them instead of fostering their own fighting forces. They would rather take those folks, instead of teaching them to be soldiers, they'd teach them to be farmers. And then they would just hire the mercenaries that they needed to defend what they owned. It wasn't until the second era, year 309, that the quarreling between the northern and southern regions of elsewhere would come to an end. The rulers of Anequina, Akirgo, and Pelatine, Ishita, would marry in a strategic move to finally unite the realms. So the north and the south, their rulers married. This unity was coined the Elsewhere Confederacy. However, the simple marriage between the two warring regions would not necessarily prove to be the soothing solution that they were looking for. Mm. Instead, whoa. Mm. Mm. Sorry, it's like the plot thickens. <laughs> I'm, I'm just taking this all in. This first time here seconds. in <laughs> Sorry. Instead, uh, the marriage spiked, uh, sparked a bunch of tribal revolts in Anequina that threatened to plunge the regions back into conflict once again. With this move, many Khajiit felt that the ruling class had betrayed the populace. It wasn't until the first main of the people, Riddharidatta, instituted a power-sharing system between the tribes that the conflict would finally settle down. Fun fact. The main Riddharidatta solution that helped to quell the conflict between Anequina and Pelatine was based upon the moon phases of Masser and Secunda. Let's talk a little bit about what that actually was and what it meant. By bestowing a system of class equality under Master and Secunda's bilunar shadow, the power was divided in accordance to the two moons dance of Jacaje. Don't worry, I was like, what the F? What does that mean? This led to a sharing of the control of elsewhere on a rotational basis with both sides benefiting during certain moon phases of Master and Secunda. So basically, depending on the moon phase, either the north or the south took power during that time. Hmm. The term... That was a subtle one. It was a little more subtle, but still a little freaking creepy. Creepy out? Like you, what, you don't want to hear walking down a dark St alley? Somebody still, going, hmm. I boop your nose. <laughs> <laughs> 
touch me. <laughs> Too late. The terms of this agreement were recorded by the Riddlethar, which was overseen by the main himself. Another fun fact. The Riddlethar was nothing but a set of guidelines by which the Khajiit would live from during this point going forward. Seen as a prophet by some or a dictator by others, Riddharidatta would manifest as different avatars. Most of these avatars were seen as humble messengers of the various gods of the Khajiiti pantheon. Okay. That's the history of the people. Let's talk the geography and the cities. Dominated by dense jungles and foresty woodlands, the, the landscape of Palatine is similar to that of Valenwood, the home of the wood elves. Well, it's right next to freaking Valenwood, so that makes tons of sense. The lush, humid climate of this area is the perfect environment for the cultivation of organic goods. If you know what I mean. Moon sugar. Much of society of Palatine is deeply involved in the process and trade in production of hallucinogenic moon sugars, which hold a strong cultural and religious significance to the Khajiit. This is a very controversial drug, but is a driving factor in the aristocracy of Palatine. The city-state of Torval is one of eight major cities in elsewhere and considered elsewhere's capital city. We haven't seen that one yet, my friends. Looking forward to that. Yes, please, Sanchal, dude. Sanchal is my hood. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> Torval is located on the western edge of the Tenmar Forest and borders Valenwood. It's literally 100, mi- or 100 yards from the border of Valenwood. This is the part that tripped me out. <laughs> right here. Carry on. cats are... Freaking cats are always causing problems. Torval is the home of the main, elsewhere's spiritual ruler. Surrounded by his tribe, the main lives. It's funny because I have a typo here that says the man. The man lives a lavish lifestyle. The man lives a lavish lifestyle. The main lives a lavish lifestyle in exotically built palaces made from timber found only in Valenwood. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, tell them why that's wrong. This is where the geek in me comes out and the lore guy in me comes out. If you've not listened to our previous lore lessons, the Bosmer live in Valenwood. The Bosmer are not okay with anybody <laughs> even clipping a leaf off of any foliage. It's part of the Green Pact. They cannot harvest anything organic <laughs> except for meat and animals. Copy that. So the Khajiit think it's okay to go into <laughs> Valenwood and steal their freaking wood. Chat says Khajiit are straight savage. They are absolute freaking savage. And you wonder why there was a war flat out between the Khajiit and the Bosmer. It's, didn't it right? start over the stolen wood? That's exactly what it started over. That's some stolen shit. freaking wood for the main's property. <laughs> Dude. Oh, it's curiosity good. killed the freaking cat. And in this case it literally did. So that's, that's funny stuff. 
Yeah, it was when I was reading that. I was like, oh, those guys are freaking crazy. Mm. Okay, so I digress. The gardens surrounding the palaces of the main are adorned with sugarcane gardens, of course, and an array of Cathay Rot servants. The main spends many hours in his tightly guarded gardens in meditation and quiet contemplation, which harkens back to our chat on the Khajiit adepts. So, lots of Khajiit are meditating mm-hmm. meditators. Mm-hmm. Fun fact. And this one was really... I could have probably done an entire lore lesson just on this. Fun fact. The temples of the two moons dance are palaces... Excuse me. Places. Places, yeah. Places. A's come in weird places sometimes. Mm. Uh, are places of philosophical study and warrior training located throughout the region of elsewhere. The temple at Torval is known to be the finest training ground for unarmed combat in all of Tamriel. I pause for Man, emphasis. wouldn't that just be... I'm sorry, <laughs> the mic was muted and I realized it mid-gasp. Mid wouldn't that just be the shit if out of nowhere it's like, oh, hey, by the way, there's a second class and it's the monk. Shut up. Would that not be the ultimate... Like, holy shit moment. That would never happen. I'm going to do this. I know it would happen. I'm going to do this just because it just happened. Okay. Okay. There's that. All right. Um, uh, I think that is a possibility. No, but not I just at all. don't think. I just don't not think that all. the. Okay. It's not a possibility because I just don't think that the monk holds enough lore significance in the Elder Scrolls world. I wish it did. Yeah. Bards, engineers. Oh, tinkerers. Oh, my heart. Oh, shut Look, up. all I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to stop after I say it. The Dwemer disappeared. Their formulas didn't. End rant. Wow, that was a very short little box jump soapbox thing something you had to, there. Something to think about. I'm so proud of you for even saying that. Thank you. Again, this is number four. I boop your nose. Boop. Don't touch. This is my no-no square. He loves it. He's such a liar. <sighs> nose boop. Nose boop. Okay. It's my life. Can I finish my fun fact? I God. wish you would. Seriously, dude, you're such a. I gotta mow the anyway. grass. A little late for that. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's actually ten po- o'clock at night. Uh, In po That's not happening. <laughs> Can you Good imagine luck. Somebody doing that. <laughs> you <know>, whiskey mixer. <laughs> 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 so anyway, the temple at Torval is known to be the finest training ground for unarmed combat in all of Tamriel. And yes, I did pause for effect. That is pretty profound. The course of study at these temples revolves around the teachings of Riddlethar. Of the Riddlethar, sorry. Uh, Students at the highest level of skill are so powerful, it is said they are nearly unbeatable in weaponless combat even if the opponent is using magic. Wow. That's pretty badass, dude. That's like, that's Terrace Cassie stuff right there. Oh yeah, I just mixed IPs. Who does that? Who mixes whiskey? I don't know. Wow. Yeah. I keep going. While the main served as the spiritual face of the Khajiiti people, Lord Garesh Ri, the Lord of Torval, that may sound familiar to you elsewhere fans, Lord Garesh Ri was the political leader of Pelotine during the Second Era. In the Second Era, year 580, not too long before Elder Scrolls. 
Garish re-signed the Elden Accord, formally making the province of elsewhere founding members of the Aldmeri Dominion. Dun, dun, dun. Now, yeah, more of that if you pay attention to our YouTube series, which is coming out very quickly. Now, Cash's character's hood. Senchal, found on the eastern tip of the Kinral Peninsula. Senchal is yet another influential port city in southern elsewhere. Full of crowded bazaars and open markets, the highly populated harbor city is a haven for pirates and smugglers that operate in the southern sea and the adjacent Topal Bay. Thought that would really get your goat, Jibs. I was kind yeah. of excited about that. Yeah, you did. Yep, pirates and smugglers. I love pirates. Senchal, they yeah, they're awesome, especially in this game. Mm-hmm. So there you go. How about a pirate class? Senchal oh, is <laughs> Senchal is widely known across the whole of elsewhere for its busy harbor and nautically adept people. We get into lore and we start talking about all the new things we want to see in the game, and Zoss probably flips us off. And that's probably fair. It's very fair. <laughs> it's incredibly fair because we're gamers and we want what we want. What we want right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fun fact. Because Senchal is located at the meeting of the Niben River and the Topal Sea, the coastline is dotted with massive whirlpools and water eddies, making navigation of the harbor a tricky proposition. You gotta know what the hell you're doing if you're gonna pull into Senchal. Okay. Trade in Senchal is not known to be altogether legal. Safe. The black market is a thriving business mm-hmm. with just about anything available for sale. Yes, we have talked about this before. Senchal is a hotbed for necromatic activity, necromantic activity, as one can easily acquire fresh corpses if one has the coin. The air in Senchal is smoggy by Tamrielic standards. It's humid and thick with smoke from the city's main chimneys. There are three districts in Senchal. Black Kiergo is considered Senchal's slums, avoided by many as it is a dangerous place with a heavy influence of moon sugar and skooma addicted unsavories. The streets in this area are dotted with illegal dens. Sugar dens, that is. The Black Kiergo section of Senchal is the original home of Rajin the Footpad, the Khajiiti god of thieves and tricksters. It was here, in Black Kiergo, that Rajin lived and operated as the greatest burglar in the province's history. One of his most notable feats was stealing the tattoo from the neck of an empress. That's pretty badass. Mm. Yes, it is. One very well-known location in Black Kiergo is called Sugar Street. The other two districts in Senchal are called Doggy's Pride and Squint Eye. In the second era, year 560, the Nahatan flu would decimate much of Senchal. This is where it landed, folks. Mm. First making its appearance on Sweet Street in Black Kirgo. The flu soon made its way to the other districts of Senchal and into the town of Alabaster, which is north just across the bay. Mm-hmm. 
it was from the ports of Alabaster that the Manhattan flu would spread across the whole of elsewhere. So the sick people got on boats, tried to get away. They were mm-hmm. sick. They didn't know it. They were in the, um, the phase where you can get people sick. What do you call uh, that again? Uh, phase one? Step one? Denial? Denial. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. I believe it's the uh, contagious stage. Oh, okay. The fever. Anyway, they got feverish. on ships, and because Alabaster was like the main port out, um, that's what happened. They traveled all across uh, elsewhere, all across uh, Tamriel, and started getting people sick. The city of Senchal would be devastated by the Manhattan flu with chaos decimating the streets as the afflicted search for relief from the disease. Much of the ruin caused by this event was never rebuilt until late in the second era, which leads me to believe that a lot of the areas that we are going to see in Senchal are still devastated by the effects of the Manhattan flu. It would definitely make sense. That's right. Case, and- you know? Folks, I know we talk a lot about the Manhattan flu, but you got to understand the impact it had on elsewhere. It nearly wiped, it wiped out half of elsewhere. So the impact is insane. It's the reason they're thinking that it's the reason for the Three Banners War. The Manhattan flu. So, and again, if you want more information on the Manhattan flu... Keep an eye on our YouTube page. Okay, fun fact. As mentioned, Elsewhere joined the Aldmeri Dominion during this period. One of the major reasons for this very unlikely union of provinces was the assistance that the High Elves offered the Khajiiti people in ridding Elsewhere of the Nahat flu. They were not asked. They showed up. Right. And there may be reasons why they showed up, but... Oh, you know there was definitely reasons. Oh, there's for sure reasons. It's interesting that at that very specific moment, they showed up. They could have showed up any time, but that that specific moment. And right afterwards, the Khajiit joined the Aldmeri Dominion. Boy, isn't that convenient how that just happened to happen. It is, but the Aldmeri, number one, are very smart, and number two, the Khajiit are fiercely loyal. The Altmer saved them from being wiped off the face of Tamriel without fear. They showed up without fear to yeah. help the Khajiit in their time of need when they were they were afflicted. A ton of True them that. were afflicted. True that. And they showed up with healers as a matter of policy mm-hmm. because they knew that they were going to need their help. And the Khajiit were very honorable and said... You helped us, we will help you, which is pretty cool. For sure. There is no doubt that Elsewhere has an amazingly rich history, and we've seen so many examples of it during the most recent adventures that we've had in Northern Elsewhere. So we cannot wait to travel to Southern Elsewhere and discover more of the story of the Khajiit, the vagabonds of the South, You've seen the trailers. We've seen the trailers. Lots of the most beloved characters in the game are returning. Some very mysterious characters are returning by way of the Breton hero. 
and the discovery of new lands and the continuation of the epic story that we're going to see in the season of the dragon. We cannot freaking wait. I can't wait either because... Um... Lore lesson freaking 62, my friends. We have put in a metric crap ton of lore over the past year and some months. Which made me very, very surprised at the fact that we have not covered the eras. Because we talk a lot about them. But this week, we are going to start covering the eras by covering the Dawn era. Now, basically, what I'm going to do is we're going to talk about the eras in succession as we go on. So we'll hit the Merithic in the first, the second, the third, fourth, blah, 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 blah. Understand we are going completely out of the Elder Scrolls timeline, at least for Elder Scrolls Online, because the Elder Scrolls Online takes place in the second era. So we're going to hit some of the bigger things that happened this week in the Dawn era. Among the most confusing aspects of the Elder Scrolls is the concept of time. It can be a point of contention for many seekers of lore, especially when we talk about dragon breaks and such, which we already have, and I'm going to try not to do too much of that tonight. But understanding when things actually took place can sometimes seem very daunting, as one story usually builds from another in the world of the Elder Scrolls. But in order to clear up some of the confusion, we're going to cover all the time periods. This week, we're starting with the Dawn Era. The beginning of time. Well, at this time in the history of Elder Scrolls, there really wasn't time at all. But the Dawn Era didn't follow a timeline of sorts as it was considered extremely non-linear. The laws of nature during this period were undefined. So any semblance of time was considered made up. It was considered artificial. So for this reason, there is no specific nomenclature for time within the Dawn Era. Nobody knows how long or how short it lasted. First fun fact. Speaking of time, and since we've most likely already confused some of you, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the dragon break. This is the only time, I swear, during this lore lesson we're going to talk about the dragon break. Maybe. A dragon break is a phenomenon where linear time itself is broken, becoming non-linear. The dragon refers to Akatosh, the dragon god of time. A dragon break will literally challenge the comprehension of mortal beings. It means that multiple instances of time can be running parallel to each other. At some point, the time will flow back into one timeline, forcing the parallel experiences back into one. I'm so sorry if this is confusing. <laughs> Although one may have experienced something in history on one plane of time during a dragon break, another person may have completely experienced something different on another parallel plane during that same dragon break. So when the timeline of a dragon break comes back together, those two individuals may share their experiences, although they may be vastly different experiences, both persons' experiences are considered true. So basically what it means is, 
Time flows in one single continuum. A dragon break happens and breaks those continuums, continuums into multiple timelines that run parallel. Different things can happen on each one of those different parallels. So when the dragon break comes back together into one timeline, each person that experienced different things on all those different parallels is considered true to lore. That's why dragon breaks are so damn confusing. Okay. They're so confusing. Eh. Get over it. I totally know because I confuse myself every time I write this crap. Anyway, in the beginning, <laughs> legends tell, uh, tell of two different entities who appeared in the void and became conflicted with one another. Now, what is the void? The void is the dark area outside of any known realms. Some consider it to be oblivion itself. But these two different entities referred to by different names, but considered the same by many different races of Tamriel represent the relationship between order and chaos. For the auspices of our lore lesson tonight, we will refer to these entities by their traditional elven personification, Anu and Padme. Padme? Close, but no cigar. <laughs> Padme. Sorry, I had to be done. Yeah, I did the same thing. Okay. Anu, sometimes referred to as Anu the Everything, is said to be the most basic form of stasis. Padme is referred to as the darkness and the quintessential form of change and chaos within the void. Padme is sometimes considered the very personification of Sithis, the patron of the Dark Brotherhood. As the legend is told, time itself began when these two forces, Anu and Padme, entered the void. The conflict that arose between the two led to the very creation of Nur. Fun fact. Nur, not Nern, Nur, N-I-R, was the creation resulting from the interplay between Anu and Padme, the light and the dark, respectively speaking. Don't worry, I will explain. Nur, who was manifested as a female, delighted both Anu and Padme. So Nur was a being. Mm-hmm. Not a human, not a beast race, nothing like that. Nur was a being manifested as a female, and she sparked the fancy of both Anu and Padme. However, Nur fell in love with Anu, which really pissed off Padme. Don't forget, Padme may be the manifestation of Sithis himself. So as a result, Padme attacked Nur. Because he attacked Nur and injured her incredibly badly, he was banished from time by Anu, who loved Nur. Nur was severely wounded by the attack by Padme, but managed to give birth to 12 worlds of creation before she died of her injuries. Still angered, Padme 
attacked and shattered all 12 of her children, all 12 of these worlds. Anu was able to fight off Padme and salvage Nur's creation by combining the remaining pieces of the 12 worlds. And in combining these remnants, you can probably guess, they were used to form Nern, the planet on which Elder Scrolls takes place. That's such a cool story. Mind blown? Yeah. Yeah. It's also like a bad episode of The Bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for completely completely dumbifying my lore lesson. <laughs> well played, sir. The next fun Thank fact. You. The word nern has a literal translation of gray maybe, as in the color. Gray maybe. And that is translated from the Elnifex, which is the ancient language of the Elnifei, that was passed down to the earliest races in the Elder Scrolls. We'll talk a little bit more about the Elnifei. Relentlessly, Padme returned once again to attempt destroying all of creation, but was fought off by Anu. Anu pulled himself and Padme both out of time itself, just shucked them right out of it, ending the threat to this creation. Remaining within creation, however, were the many spirits of both entities. So during the battle with Padme, Anu's blood was spilled, and that became the stars. All the little tiny droplets of blood of Anu became the stars. Anu's blood coupled with the spilled blood of Padme combined to form the Adra. The chaos between the light and the dark is said to have created the Arbus. The Arbus is seen as a wheel in which Mundus is the hub. So if you picture a wagon wheel, Mundus is the hub and the empty spaces within the spokes are the very planes of oblivion. The empty space beyond is the void and the rim itself contains the, the realms of Aetherius or the mortal plane. Fun fact. Aetherius, also known as the immortal plane, is the origin of all magic and the arcane arts. The stars and the sun in the sky are thought to be the holes into are thought to be holes into Aetherius left by the various spirits. We're going to get into that a little bit more. The eight spokes of the wheel connecting the edge of the hub represent the original eight divines. So each spoke creates a space. There are eight spaces. Those eight spaces represent the divines. Who played a major part in creation? The divines are also depicted as planets orbiting Nern and its moons in the center portion of the Arbus. Magnus was known as the architect, and he is depicted as the sun that was created when Magnus the God himself fled the realm of Mundus to Aetherius after Nern's creation where the stars were formed by the Magnagi or the children of Magnus who followed him. Time actually begins when the first god, the dragon god of time, Akatosh, forms. 
From this formation, other notable spirits began to take physical form and became aware of themselves with a past and a future. The strongest of these spirits began to crystallize during this time within the creation of Mephala, Arche, Ephraim, Magnus, and Ruptaga. Let's talk a little bit about Lorcan's plan. I know, this is deep, deep, deep stuff. This is really meaty. Yes. We'll talk a little bit about a little bit about Lorcan. During Lorcan, during this time, a Padamaic being, which is a being of Padame, the darkness, remember. This being enters the fray, and details of his plan for the creation of a mortal realm called Mundus. Mundus would lie in the center of the Arbus, or the hub of the wheel that we talked about. Kinnereth, the goddess of the heavens, winds, and the elements, was the first to agree to Lorcan's plan, and she even made space for its creation within the void. Many of the Adra and the gods joined together and contributed their own power to bring Lorcan's vision to fruition. Magnus would serve as the architect of this new world. Ariel would join the construction with the promise of being made this new world's king. Fun fact. Several other prominent Padomaic spirits, dark spirits, didn't like the idea of a mortal realm. Jibs, can you tell me what they became? Uh, no, I know they oppose the idea themselves, but I can tell you this, reading further on, these spirits are known as the Adric Princes. Yes, they are. Many of these spirits adamantly opposed the idea. They did not like Lorcan's plan. They thought it was crap. If it's not Scottish, it's crap. <laughs> they created worlds within themselves. Daedric Realms. Today, these spirits are known as the Daedric Princes. All of this is obviously considered pretty big news in the development of Elder Scrolls. During this time, which we call the Dawn Era, several other critical events took place. So let's kind of dive into those a little bit. During the Dawn Era, the first rune stones appeared in Cyrodiil. Believed to be Lorcan's birthing gifts to the mortal race, the Cyrodiilic rune stones appeared during the Dawn Era. These runestones were rune-covered monoliths in the center of a circle of large stones. The stones glow green and provide a bonus to weapons and armor when used. Birth sign and heaven stones grant one of several powers specific to each stone to the user. Adric Sacrifices Most of the Adra who sacrifice themselves in the creation of Mundus either die or are severely crippled by their contributions to its creation during the Dawn Era. Many exist as mere shadows of their former selves as the mortal plane of existence becomes unstable. The new lands become a chaotic place where time follows no clear path and decay becomes an obvious side effect. Aging. So where the Adra and the Daedra are timeless the mortal races of Mundus become have the ability to die. 
For many of these reasons, Lorcan's plan is seen as a failure. Because these are not perfect beings. They can age. They can oxidize. They can die. So Lorcan's plan is seen as a failure and hatred and resentment toward him begin to grow. Now, fun fact. Regretful of his contributions, Auriel begged to Anu to take him back into the Arbus. Like, I'm out. This is screwed. I want my divinity back. But the soul of Anu named Anuiel, instead grants Ariel his bow and shield to protect the ancient Aldmer from Lorcan's own creation of men. Ariel would found the very first kingdoms of the Altmer, Altmora, and the old Elnafe, the old gods. My gosh, there's a whole lot of what yeah. moments in this. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. When you like absorb this stuff, it makes a ton of sense at how Mundus was created. The escape of Magnus. Now, this one's really cool. During the Dawn Era, Magnus, the architect, would abandon Mundus with his children, the Magnagi. They would follow behind him. So he left because he was, he was done. I have given all I can give to the creation of this Mundus. I'm out. So he travels back to Aetherius, and in doing so, he creates holes in the very fabric of the universe, which creates the sun and the stars. The tears created allow for the... In the I'm sorry, that is so stupid of me. The tears created <laughs> from his hasty retreat and that of his children allow for the influx of magic on the face of Nern. That is where the magic comes from, my friends. The tears in the very yeah. fabric of reality that was caused by Magnus and his children retreating from the mortal realm. That is some deep crap right there, dudes. That's, yeah, that's one of my favorite bits of lore and as far as yeah. like the starting of time and all that stuff you know when it, when it comes to ESO how Magicka came to be right. in the world it's such a good study that's it that is it right there yep. so now let's talk a little bit about Lorcan and his fall Lorcan is shattered Lorcan during this time in the first era or in the um, uh, dawn era is bested in battle by Ariel's greatest champion Trinimac if you don't like poop jokes, you might want to turn this off. On the battlefield, Lorcan is knocked down in front of his army, and his heart is literally removed by Trinimac, undoing the god of mortals. It is said that upon this act, Lorcan loses his divine spark, and when rain falls for the first time, Sheagorath is born. This theory coincides with the Daedric Prince's growing apprehensive about Jigalag, the Daedric Prince of Order. Follow me. It is said that the other Daedric Princes tran transformed Jigalag into Sheagorath, cursing him with madness and disorder as punishment. Because Jigalag's thing was order. He was a straight shooter. And yeah. it really pissed off the other Daedric princes. So they literally turned him into Sheagorath. Madness and disorder. 
to punish him. Wow. Yeah. Also during the Dawn era, the first secret is told. And of course, this has to do with our beloved Khajiit. According to Khajiiti legend, Azura speaks to she speaks the first secret to the moons of Masser and Secunda, allowing her to transform the ancient and suffering forest people into the Khajiit. If Frey hears the first secret and in turn transforms his own group of forest people into the Bosmer. The Elnafe, the old gods at war. Also occurring during the Dawn Era, Nern is locked in a war between the Old Marys and the Wanderers. The old Elnafe, known, now known in modern Tamriel, lies in ruins. The remaining Wanderers, they'd lost their home, they're relegated to Atmora, Yokuda, and Akavar. A majority of the lands of the Hist during this time are destroyed, leaving only the Black Marsh for the Hist to dwell. Also in the Dawn Era, the Aldmer become Aldmeris. The Aldmer of Somerset Isle were desperate to find their ancient home and develop magical waystones which always point in one certain direction. Now, this harkens back to the stones that guided Topol the pilot, the very first adventurer and traveler of Tamriel. In hopes of aiding their quest to rediscover their ancient homeland. So remember, all the things with Topol the pilot, which was another lore lesson we did. Incredibly interesting lore lesson. Yeah, it was. That was a good he, one. Uh, him and his other sea-bearing ship captains were guided by these magical waystones. Okay, the Dwemer and the Divine, also happening within the Dawn Era, the Dwemer begin to study the ways of the ancient Elnafe, specifically the process of becoming the Profane. I couldn't find any more on that. I was like, what the hell does that mean? Hmm. Also within the, the uh, Dawn era, the Dereni Towers created. So when Magnus the Architect departed Mundus, after he was done creating it, or at least being the architect for its creation, the world began to become more real and less conceptual. This is when races actually became mortal. The Etada, which were known as the individual gods of Tamriel, built a great tower in which to meet to discuss the future of Mundus and also the fate of Lorcan. It is here that the physical, temporal, spiritual, and magical elements of Nern are set in place. Now, the Dereni Tower will, will also become, you know, known by many, many other names over the history, but it originated as the Dereni Tower. This made the development of mortals follow slow, comprehensible paths which includes death this speaks to the differentiation of the people of Tamriel Mur are now born into different sub races the Dwemer also known as the Deep Ones the Chimer the Changed Ones the Bosmer the Green or Forest Ones the Altmer the Elder or High Ones this fracturing that took place at the Dereni Tower of the Aldmer racial lines is also known as the Sundering of Aldmeris. Some remaining Elnafe will become beast races 
and humans in Nern. So, the races of Nord, the races of Breton, and then the beast races, which are the orcs, the Khajiit, and... What else did I miss? And the um, Argonians. Um, okay, so all uh, other Elnafe sacrifice themselves into other forms and stay to attempt to salvage Mundus. Oh, Ooh. wow! Yeah, I'm just gonna say this. Summarize that lore lesson. Quote chat member Miss Von Jamestein says this makes Greek mythology look basic AF. It truly does. End quote. And I'm I'm wow. not gonna lie to you. It took me about three days to put this together. This is the this is the Cliff's Notes of the Dawn Era. It's oh incredibly gosh. deep, my friends, but that was a majority of it for you. Friends, we are continuing our saga that started with the Dawn Era. Uh, last episode, we covered the Merithic in this lore lesson. Lore Lesson 64, we are covering the First Era. Now, granted, I am hitting the major points for all of you in the First Era because there's so much that happens in these timelines. We would be here for at least two hours if I were to cover everything. So I'm going to hit some of the biggest things, the things that you are... I mean, this is the first era, so this is the era right before Elder Scrolls Online takes place. So there's a lot of parallels in here, a lot of things that you will see in-game that are mentioned about the first era. You'll see them in lore books and such during the second era when we play. So after the Dawn era, and now that much of the landscape of Tamriel has been established in the Dawn and Merithic. The races of beasts and men were now seated in the world. The first era arrives with the founding of the Cameron dynasty by King Eplier. This uh, date for the founding of the dynasty, the first era, year zero, which is known as 1E0, is traditionally recorded as the first date in Tamriel's history. King Epler, now who was he? He was known to have been the first among the people to unite the wild ancestral Bosmer and create the actual political identity of Valenwood. He was a very kind and welcoming king, and he really kind of set the stage for the Bosmer and their, hosp their hospitable ways towards others. As an example, he led the Bosmer in assisting and housing the refugees from the Aelid Empire who were coming from Cyrodiil into Valenwood, and they were seeking refuge in the forest, and he was very open arms and welcoming to them. Here's a little fun fact. The Aelids, also known as the Heartland High Elves, are the first race to have created an empire in Tamriel. They ruled the province of Cyrodiil for thousands of years, even before any historical dates were recorded. So we're talking Merithic. Their language was similar to the ancient language of the Aldmer, but the Aelids called it Aeliadun. 
Okay, so some of the biggest things that happened during the first era. We'll start in Skyrim. In the first era, year 143, King Harold XIII, who was a descendant of Isgrimor, is crowned the High King of the Nords. Skyrim is then transformed into an independent kingdom, and Will, uh, Windhelm is made its capital. A bad kitty. Uh, in the first era, year 240, uh, year 240, the Skyrim conquests began. So basically what happens for the next 50 years is the Nords began to expand their empire across Morrowind and High Rock. Here's another fun fact. In the first era, year 198, a conflict stemming from the Merithic era called the Narfensal Schism comes to a head Bless in Cyrodiil. Sorry, I sneezed. <laughs> the Narfensal <laughs> Schism. So the traditional Adra-worshipping aliens, who are known as the Barsabics, were in a stalemate with Daedra-worshipping aliens called Daedraphiles in Cyrodiil. The Barsabics were defeated and the for their forces were driven into northern Argonia, ending the organized opposition to Daedra worship in Cyrodiil. All of a sudden, Daedra wor worship is legal. We'll talk a little bit about the Alessian Slave Rebellion, which is certainly uh, referred to in Elder Scrolls Online. In the first era, year 242, the Cyrodelians enslaved under alien overlords rebelled against their captor. Captors. So, slave queen Alessia gathered a following. And she was aided by the legendary nomad warrior Pelinal Whitestrake, which is certainly talked about in Elder Scrolls Online. And together they would prove victorious over the aliens who would oppress them as slaves. Well, maybe not Pelinal Whitestrake. He just kind of took on the protector role because he was traveling all over the place causing all kinds of trouble. Um, but he took particular interest in slave queen Alessia and the Alessian slave rebellion and decided to stay and help. So in the final battle of this conflict, Pelina Whitestrake would kill the alien king. His name was Umeril the Unfeathered, and that took place in the White Gold Tower. Whitestrake would also die of his wounds in the battle, and his body, this is gnarly, was cut into eight pieces by the aliens because they were obsessed with the number eight, and they did this to intentionally mock the divines. With the time, we're ace. <laughs> Oh, oh, I love this lore. It's just so dang well thought Ooh, out. Yeah. So the alien defeat at the White Gold Tower marked the beginning of their slow fall from power in the region. Now, the one thing that did remain are the alien ruins. And we still get to see alien ruins. And in some cases, alien is still a mm -hmm. thing. It's super mm -hmm. rare, but it's still a thing. So Queen Alessia, after her uh, after her defeat or after her uh, victory, would found the Alessian Empire and drive out the remaining aliens. Also, in the first era, first era year two four six, Daggerfall City is founded by the Nords invading the province of High Rock. Now, a little excerpt from a book. 
a book entitled The Book of Life on page 933, written by the Nords. It reads, North of the highest bluffs, south of the moors, west of the hills, and east of the sea is called Daggerfell. 110 men, 93 women, 13 children under 8 years of age, 58 cows, 7 bulls, 63 chickens, 11 cocks, chickens, and 38 hogs live there, unquote. In the first era, year 266, I'm surprised Jibs didn't chuckle at that. In the first era, year 266, the Empress Alessia dies. She becomes the first of the Cyrodiilic saints. Akatosh himself arrives at the White Gold Tower during this time and makes Empress Alessia the first gem in the Amulet of Kings, thus beginning the covenant between the Imperials and Akatosh. This union between the Imperials and Akatosh, with the help of the Amulet of Kings, helps to protect Tamriel from the forces of Oblivion. And it becomes a thing for every single Emperor to have that Amulet of Kings passed on. Also during this time, the rise of the Dureni clan takes place. Through a series of very keen political moves, the only known Altmer ruling family remaining in the human lands, known as Clan Dureni, seizes power of High Rock in the first era, year 355. Eventually, they would be driven out as a result of the Battle of Glenumbria Moors, and that was against the Alessian Order, and that was in the first era, first era year 498. So they had a good run, about 150 years, that Clan Dureni um, was up there. And it just goes uh, goes on to say that uh, Clan Dureni actually renames the um, the tower to the, to the Dureni Tower, and that was the tower that all the talks took place way back in the Dawn Era. It was uh, right in between the Dawn and Merithic Era, when all those talks in between the Adra took place. What are we going to do with Nerm? So anyway, they renamed that tower. Uh, in the first era, year 416, the liberation of Morrowind takes place. The Nords, who, an inv- who had invaded Resdane, which is now modern-day Morrowind, were driven out by the Chimer and the Dwemer, an unlikely awesome. union between the Chimer and the Dwemer. Lord Indoril Nerevar of the Chimer and Dumak Dwarf King of the Dwemer would become the leadership of the First Council of Resdane. So for the first time in history, the Chimer and the Dwemer would flourish in harmony under the leadership of these two leaders. That doesn't last long, though. In, dun, dun, dun. dun, dun, dun. I thought you might like the, uh, the talk of the uh, Chimer and the Dwemer. I love it so bad. Uh, so now let's talk a little bit about the Khajiit during this time. So in the first era, 5th century, which typically is like, from first era 400 all the way to 500 is considered the fifth century. My Khajiit. Come here, Duner. Up you go. Um, so the Khajiit during this time begin a series of military conquests led by Darlok Bray, who is known as the Golden Beast of Anequina. Bray was a Khajiiti warlord known for being brutal in his leadership, but his leadership also was fantastic in the expansion across the northern weightlands of uh, Anequinine. 
and this encompassed all the lands between basically Arenthus and Rimen in northern elsewhere. He was perceived as glorious for this expansion because remember the Khajiit had been kind of pushed out of everywhere else they went and they ended up landing in elsewhere. So this expanded their reach. Um, this particular act would serve as an inspiration for Anequina's modern martial traditions and would be seen as an effort to preserve elsewhere's history. So it was kind of a big part for the Khajiit during that era, during this, um, the first era. In the first era, seventh century, the War of the Crag takes place. And this is between, uh, or this is with the Snow Elves of Blackreach, and they would face a life-altering conflict with the Dwemer. So the Snow Elves, who were being driven out of their home by the Nords in the Nord Conquest, Skyrim Conquest, the Nords were driving them out. So the Snow Elves, in order to seek refuge, they were able to foster a deal with the mountain-dwelling Dwemer. But it was going to cost them. Played Skyrim, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. We've mentioned this in a previous lore lesson. The Dwemer offered their help only if the Snow Elves would agree to eat a toxic fungus, oh which would gosh. later render the entirety of the Snow Elves blind. Now, if that doesn't speak to the desperation of the surviving, fleeing snow elves, I don't know what does. Because so gnarly, it's terrible. So what ends end ends up happening is that they were forced into slavery by the Dwemer, because this toxic fungus rendered them blind. Eventually, after many generations, the snow elves who were blind would morph into the underground-dwelling Falmer. Now, eventually, they figured it out, and they revolted against the Dwemer, and they had a bitter conflict that would rage for years all under the surface. Now, the Nords that were up above had no idea of the war that was raging beneath their feet. <laughs> What's that small explosion, Mom? Oh, it's... I don't know. Yeah. I think that was an earthquake. I don't know. It was a... <laughs> That's a mama. Something's rumbling underneath my feet. <laughs> so, <laughs> they had no idea all this was going on. Apparently, mom's Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be rigored, the brash. I guess oh, it right. didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so the war would only end after decades of conflict and bloodshed with the mysterious and abrupt disappearance of the entire Dwemer race. That is a story for an entire other lore lesson, which we have covered mm -hmm. when we covered the Dwemer. <laughs> okay. The War of the First Council. Now it just couldn't last around the first era, year 668, or possibly later, as some have speculated. The War of the Red Mountain would take place, coinciding with a cataclysmic eruption of the Red Mountain in Morrowind itself. The Keimer Great Houses and the Secular Dwemer would be at odds once again. And this is a little, little bit, you know, right around that same timeline. After many years of prosperity under the leadership of the First Council of Resdane, which we talked about was the, um, was the union between the Keimer and the Dwemer. Now, during this conflict, the Nords of Skyrim, they're so smart, they took advantage of the chaos <laughs> and joined in the fray when the Keimer and the Dwemer were fighting each other. And they eventually uh, ended up 
driving them out in the first era, year 416. And then once again, we talk about the, the disappearance of the Dwemer. So this conflict abruptly ends with the mysterious disappearance of the entire Dwemer race and the death of Lord Indoril Narivar. So these events would really lay the foundation for what would become the tribunal in Morrowind. Oh, I love that, Lord. Right. The great houses would finally just go, okay, let's do this thing on our own. Mm-hmm. Okay, also around that same time period, a little bit later, first era, year 792, Yokuda is destroyed. A renegade group of Ansei, and you'll know Ansei as the uh, the greatest among the sword singers of Yokuda. Now, this was an incredibly huge martial race. Race, And when I say Yokuda, I am talking about the uh, ancient ancestors of the Red Guard. We'll get there. Don't worry. What actually happens is this renegade group of Ansei are defeated in battle. They're pissed off. And somehow they mysteriously sink the entire island of Yokuda. It is said to have been done with magic. I would imagine it would have to be done with magic as opposed to just stomping on the ground. That's not going to work. Well, you never know. You never Good know. Good chant does wonders nowadays. So what happens then is that Yokuda begins to sink and there's refugees all over the place. So many of them would flee to the Isle of, of Hearn while others would travel across the sea and find a new home in Tamriel. This warrior wave of Yokudans that landed on Tamriel would basically start from the coast and destroy everything in their path, including beast folk and a lot of the native Nidic people who lived there were just flat out murdered by this wave of Redguard that showed up, which was the Regatta. That's what it was called. And that name, Mm -hmm. the name that they were given, Regatta, was later morphed into the Redguard. And that became the warrior race that now claims their their home in Hammerfell. That's like a reminds me of the Urukai Urukai and uh, Lord of the Rings two towers going across the plains, just burning everything. That's pretty much what they did. That's, That's pretty insane. much what they did. That's and crazy. The people see that when in Redguard culture, the people who opposed them got an honorable death because you're That's what I was gonna pretty say. Yeah. much not going to beat the martial prowess of a Redguard during that time. No. The ones who did not, the ones who didn't fight and just surrendered became slaves. They're like, yeah, no. They're either that or they were just flat out just murdered. That's right. Women, Better children. Die on your feet than die on your knees. Yeah. You're not going to run. You're just going to die tired. Anyway. Yep. Okay. In the first era, year 950, the assault on Orsinium takes place. The Orcish capital at Orsinium is attacked as a result of the union of Daggerfall, the Nords, Sentinel, and the Order of Diagna, which is the Red Guard at that time. This conflict lasted 30 years and resulted in the Orcs being driven out of their home in Orsinium for the first time. Uh, in the first era, year 1301, Skywatch's attack. We've also talked about this one, but this is kind of the entrance of the slug like slowed race. Because they landed on uh, on Auradon at Skywatch. And, it, of course, you know Auradon as being one of the islands in the Somerset Isles. And they attacked the Thras attack, or the Slowed from Thras attacked the city at Skywatch. And ain't nobody got time for Slowed. Ain't nobody got time for that. Now, that will continue here in just a second. Now, right around this time, a dragon break was said to happen. 
at some point during the first era, 15th century around. A dragon break was said to have occurred lasting for 1,008 years. Now, I don't know how they were so precise that it was 1,008 years when some scholars describe this time period, the dragon break, as a timeless time. Many said it was caused by just a simple error in the timeline. So that, it's like, just like a dragon break. It's super vague. Yep. You don't really Kinda know what confusing. happened. How in the hell do they know it was 1,008 years for one? I and number know. two, who dropped the freaking ball and made an error in the timeline? Whoops. Like, was there one dude that was in charge? So that may take a little bit more explanation for me personally. I mean, I'm sure there's people, there's lore hounds out there that know exactly what happened, but that's, yeah, that's a story from another point of view. It's a story for a whole other talk show. Okay. So, uh, first era year 2200. Let's talk a little bit more about the Slode again. The Slode of Thras released the Thrasian plague upon Tamriel. Now I will preface, and I'm not going to preface. I'm just going to repeat what I'm going to say here again. Because every time I read through this, I have to say it twice. The Thracian Plague killed more than half of Tamriel's entire population over several centuries. This was the plague of the First Era, for sure. More than one half of Tamriel's population. This would prompt the forming of the All Flags Navy, a massive fleet of ships comprising every single nation in Tamriel seeking retribution for the release of the Thracian Plague. Now, the All Flags Navy went on through a very tough battle to sink the entire kingdom of Thras with the use of magic. All right, first era, year 2837. This is getting late. The Second Empire, which was known as the Cyrodiilic Empire or also known as the Remen Dynasty. The Second Empire seized a very large portion of swamplands in Argonia and created the province of Black Marsh. After the Second Empire was dissolved in the Second Era, Second Empire was dissolved in the Second Era. I don't want to confuse anybody. It was no longer considered a province of Cyrodiil. So they're like, yeah, Argonia is kind of harsh. We don't need it. And in the last year of the First Era, First Era year 2920, is considered the last year of the First Era. The Dunmer Fortress at Blackgate would be sacked, breaking a long-standing truce between the Empire and Morrowind. Followed by the sacking is the assassination of Emperor Remen III and his son, his, his heir and successor, Prince Juliac. They were both murdered by the Morag Tong. That's Interesting how it's massive, the Morag Tong. Yeah, it's huh? a massive political move. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the person to take the throne was the Akaviri potentate Versidushai. He would assume the imperial throne and then at that point declare the very beginning of the second era, which we will cover next week. Oh, man, that is so good. Yeah. And that, my friends, is probably about half of the events that took place. There's so much more in this yeah. rabbit hole that is the timeline of Elder Scrolls. It's massive. Agreed. You did really good. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>